Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. A widely used blood test for diabetes can give variable results depending on a person's race and other factors. This means diabetes can sometimes be misdiagnosed or managed poorly, as NPR's Richard Harris reports. Blood sugar levels rise and fall all the time, so it can be tricky to look at a single exam to diagnose diabetes or manage the disease in people who have it. But one test gets around this problem. Dr. Anthony Blyer at the Wake Forest School of Medicine says the A1C test takes the long view. And it actually gives us an average of the blood glucose over the past three months. So this has turned out to be an incredibly powerful task, both for the diagnosis and the treatment of diabetes. And the assumption is that everybody is pretty much the same, right? And is that true? That's the problem. No, that's the problem is everybody is not the same, and it's a little more complicated than that. People with anemia, for example, get different readings on the test. And a few years ago, scientists realized that African-American readings don't match those from whites. So the test was really um, standardized more based on white individuals, and there were just a small number of African-American individuals in that study. And while the difference isn't large, it can matter for borderline readings, which are fairly common. It can also be misleading for people whose treatment is guided by the test, because doctors may be too aggressive in managing blood sugar based on a too high reading. Now there's a study that looks more closely at how much the test can vary among people who carry a common genetic pattern, sickle cell trait. About 10% of African Americans carry one copy of the sickle cell gene, giving them the trait but not the disease. And so we thought maybe sickle cell trait could be explaining part of the difference. Mary Lacey is a graduate student at Brown University and lead author of the new report in JAMA. She and her colleagues examined two large studies to compare African Americans with and without the sickle cell trait. 
The studies used certain A1C tests that had previously been shown to give low readings for people with the sickle cell trait. Lacey and colleagues were surprised to find how big a difference it made. About 4% of the people in the study who carried the sickle cell trait had readings indicative of diabetes, but they expect the real number correcting for the test could be about 7%, nearly twice as many people. We were really shocked by that, honestly. That's huge. The lesson here is doctors should be cautious when interpreting a patient's A1C results, especially for African Americans. Doctors generally take the test fairly literally. Mara Darso is at the American Diabetes Association. Taking results literally can be a mistake. How much this impacts care and the interpretation of A1C results, I think, is variable. Doctors who read the fine print in her organization's guidelines know that these test readings can be skewed for African Americans and people with sickle cell trait and similar variants. So instead of making a SNAP diagnosis, doctors could run some more traditional blood sugar tests. They aren't influenced by race and sickle cell status. Information together from all of these tests can be really much more powerful than when they're taken in isolation. The Diabetes Association would ultimately like to come up with more concrete treatment guidelines. But for now, the word to doctors is be aware this is an issue and use your best judgment. Richard Harris, NPR News. Right now, a possible hate crime is under investigation in Orange County. The victims showed New Six flyers they say were placed on their vehicles with a hateful message above a swastika symbol, their tires also slashed. News 6 reporter Sashel Saunders is following the investigation. This afternoon, deputies are still looking for whoever might be behind this. That woman says she thinks she knows why she was targeted, but she's not going to let that stop her. 23-year-old Stacia Allen knew her work as a Black Lives Matter organizer might bring some trouble, but nothing like this. I noticed that it has something on the windshield that says, N-word lives do not matter. Nigga! And that was... That was like, wow, someone really feels that way. She woke up in her Pine Hills neighborhood to find the racist note, complete with swastika on the cars in the driveway. And that wasn't all. Like her boyfriend's tire was slashed. Notice that my brother's tires were slashed. Notice that my father's tires were slashed. Allen was organizing a demonstration for this Friday. She says speaking out is now costing her. That people still have hate in their heart when after all the progression we have made with either the lesbian and gay community or with, you know, the black community or with, you know, with the laws that have been passed for other things. She's now more cautious, but doesn't plan to change, hoping that others can rally around her message of acceptance. It's just like a, like an eye opener because I've never experienced racism, like to this degree, at least. The family has now gotten all of their cars fixed. Allen also told me that Orange County Sheriff's deputies came out, got fingerprints, say they are now investigating this as a hate crime. Reporting at OCSO, Sashel Saunders, News 6. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, Together, we will make America great again. Around the world, refugees and people with visas to enter the United States are scrambling to get here while President Trump's travel ban is on hold. How long it will be on hold is impossible to say. The legal battle over the ban is now in Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals here in California, and the president is expressing his displeasure with that on Twitter. Let's chat now with NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Good morning, Tam. Good morning. 
So as of now, as of this morning, what is the status of the president's immigration order? It's on hold. The State Department and Department of Homeland Security have lifted the ban, at least temporarily. So students and doctors and others from those seven Muslim-majority countries rushed to get back into the U.S. to resume their lives. And refugee agencies are putting people on planes as fast as they can to get them into the U.S. And, of course, there's an urgency because... The lifting of the ban could very well be temporary, measured in hours or days rather than weeks, depending on what happens in court. Okay, so how long this would last depends on what happens in courts. A lot of confusion back and forth in the courts over the weekend. What exactly happened? So a federal judge in Washington state, James Robart, issued a temporary restraining order from the bench late Friday. That put the ban on hold nationwide until its legality could be argued. Uh, This stems from a case uh, Washington state and Minnesota had sued to stop the ban, saying that it would hurt their economies. Uh, The Justice Department then filed an appeal late Saturday. uh, But the appeals court, the Ninth Circuit, which is known to be liberal, declined the administration's request to immediately put the ban back into effect. Um, The Ninth Circuit asked for briefs. Um, The states filed theirs overnight, saying that putting the ban back in place would cause chaos, just as they say it did when the ban was initially signed. Uh, They also submitted a declaration from 10 big-name national security figures who mostly served in Democratic administrations, saying, quote, as a national security measure, the order is unnecessary. Uh, There's a 3 p.m. Pacific time deadline today for the government the Justice Department to submit its brief, which makes it seem like the justices uh, in the Ninth Circuit are planning to move on the question of this temporary restraining order very quickly. Wow. Okay. But legal limbo. I mean, I've I've never heard a moment when those those words are more apt. Um, And the president, of course, uh, goes on Twitter and doesn't hold back at all. That's correct. He tweeted nine times about the ban over the weekend, calling the judge a so-called judge. And here's just one tweet I want to read for you. He says, Quote, just cannot believe a judge would put our country in such peril if something happens, blame him and the court system, people pouring in, bad exclamation point. Of course, he is referencing uh, the uh, separation of powers there. And and we just have to point out that um, these refugees that are coming in are heavily vetted, including fingerprinting, DNA analysis, all, all kinds of vetting. Okay, NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Tam, thanks. You're welcome. Real gangster ass niggas don't talk much. All you hear is the black from the gun blast. And real gangster ass niggas don't run for shit. It's real gangster ass niggas can't run fast. Now when you in the freeway talking shit, you the shit hit the pin and let a motherfucker shank you. But niggas like myself kick back and peep game. Cause damn, it feels good to be a gangster. In the city of Las Vegas this morning, jury selection is getting underway in the federal conspiracy trial against rancher Cliven Bundy and his militia followers. Bundy is facing more than a dozen felony charges, including assault on a federal officer in connection with an armed standoff against federal agents. NPR's Kurt Sigler has more. Cliven Bundy owes the federal government close to a million dollars in unpaid grazing fees and fines dating back to the 1990s. It all boiled over in April of 2014 when federal agents came to round up hundreds of his cows near his ranch in the Nevada desert. They were met by the armed Bundy militia, some on horseback, waving American flags. Interstate 15 was blocked, guns were drawn, and things got extremely tense. Federal agents in military-style combat fatigues eventually stood down as shown in this YouTube video. 
Now we're going to go and take our land back. Cliven Bundy wasn't arrested until almost two years later, last January, when he flew to Oregon to join his sons who were leading an armed occupation at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. His sons were recently acquitted in that case, though they still face charges with their father in Nevada. The Nevada case is completely separate, and its implications could be much bigger. Cliven Bundy is seen as the mastermind behind this anti-government movement, and after the surprise Oregon verdict, Rick Pocker says prosecutors are no doubt rethinking their strategy. The pressure is really on the government. Pocker is a former U.S. attorney for Nevada. If there's two straight acquittals of individuals who engage in, in pretty much the same conduct and it's very confrontational with the federal authorities, that could embolden a lot of folks um, on the, the right wing of the ideological spectrum. Pocker says the government needs to show that the Bundys and others intended to harm federal officers, that it wasn't just a protest. And that's important if they want a conviction. Like in Oregon, a lot is riding on jury selection, with jurors being pooled from across southern Nevada. You have rural communities in Alamo, Mesquite, and places like that where the sentiment is a lot closer to those who uh, resist the federal government on these lands issues than uh, to say somebody from inner city Las Vegas. The 17 defendants will be tried in three separate phases. The Bundys and the other lead organizers may not be in court themselves for weeks. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. For 10 days in August 1992, Randy Weaver and his family engaged in a deadly standoff against hundreds of law enforcement and federal agents in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. Just six months later, federal officials laid siege to the compound of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas, and that resulted in the deaths of 82 of its members, including their leader, David Koresh. These events may have inspired Timothy McVeigh to bomb a federal government building in Oklahoma City. Uh, Barack Goodman explores the rise of the extremist militia movement and the events that inspired the largest domestic terrorist attack in American history. Oklahoma City premieres on PBS Tonight at 9, and a companion film, Ruby Ridge, premieres on PBS stations next Tuesday night at 9. I'm very pleased it has brought Barack Goodman back to our show. Welcome back. Thanks so much. And and the suggestion here is that the Randy Weaver, uh, Ruby Ridge, and uh, and also the Branch Davidian things were directly linked to what Timothy McVeigh did in Oklahoma City? Yeah, there's really no question about that. I mean, McVeigh himself both wrote and said in jailhouse interviews um, how inspired he was by these previous events. And in fact, he picked April 19th for the bombing because it was the second anniversary of the Waco fire. Where did Randy Weaver live? Uh, what did his home look like? Randy Weaver came from Iowa with his family to a very, very remote part of northern Idaho, about 50 miles from the Canadian border, and lived in a ramshackle little cabin up on the mountain far from anybody. And how many people were in that ramshackle cabin? There were five Weavers, um, excuse me, six Weavers, and um, 
a friend, uh, a, a family friend named Kevin Harris. And what were their reasons for, for isolating themselves in that way? It was interesting. It's, it's a combination of things. Mostly it was religiously inspired. They were feared in a sort of coming Armageddon. And, uh, but there was also... So they were just going to wait out until the last days? They were going to wait it out. They were going to hopefully... It, it wasn't very well spelled out, but they were hopefully going to be able to survive somehow this, this expected Armageddon. But then Randy uh, began to flirt with white supremacists and white separatist ideas, and that put in motion the, the Ruby Ridge tragedy. That's because the area they were in is not all that far for, from a lot of white supremacist groups, including the Aryan nations. Idaho became a kind of gathering point place for a lot of these sort of white supremacists. It was a place where they imagined they could create a whites-only homeland far from you know the contamination of other people. But it goes further. They have uh, Nazi paraphernalia, for example. What's right. the appeal of that for them? Are they opposed to government, as they suggest, simply? Or are they also anti-Semites, white supremacists, it's a all whole, of the above? It's a whole sort of stew of grievances. Uh, it begins with a white supremacy, uh, white supremacist point of view, where they believe that they are the supreme racists, and, and, and that's being taken away. And usually they blame the federal government for that loss of power, loss of privilege. The federal government's been infiltrated in, in their minds by Jews and blacks, essentially. So. But all you have to do is look at what goes on in this country, and you realize that whites are not being oppressed. In particular, in fact, if you look at uh, average incomes, minorities still earn less. Uh, Jews do not control the White House. No one ever accused these folks of being clear-eyed rationalists. I mean, I don't think that this... I think this is an emotional reaction more than it is a rational one. Um, this is a very old trope in American history, as you well know. These folks are not going away. They've, they've always been around. They, they reappear every few decades in a kind of spectacular way. But this sort of white supremacist movement in America is very, very old. And then Randy Weaver started working for the Aryan Nations? No. no Randy Weaver was... was flirting with the Aryan nations in, in the sense that he uh, would go to their annual congresses, listen, but he became a target of the FBI and, and the ATF. Uh, he, they thought they could flip him and he would become an informant. He refused. He was so suspicious of the federal government at that point that he absolutely refused. And so they sought to arrest him. And when that happened, he retreated to his cabin up on that top of that hill, very well armed. And that began the set of events that resulted in, in the Ruby Ridge tragedy. He chose not to go to court on the assigned date. He was given the wrong date, which was a, a problem. But even after that was corrected, he still refused to go to court, yes. How were they viewed by the United States Marshal Service and the FBI? Were well, they seen as a real danger? They were. The, Mar the Marshal Service initially was given the case because he was a fugitive, uh, and they did a kind of threat assessment. And there'd been there'd been terrorist activity in this area in the previous years, and for whatever reason, they lumped the Weaver family in with that sort of paramilitary terrorist white supremacist ideology and believed and inflated the danger clearly uh, uh, from the Weaver family. And, and although they were somewhat patient, they took 18 months of, of simple, simply surveying him. They didn't go up there to arrest him. They were, waited him out. But they saw him as a threat. There's no question. And there is surveillance footage, and we see yeah. people walking around the property with, with armed, heavily armed. 
Which is uh, a very common to, thing they, in they, Idaho. They were protecting themselves against uh, the, the government uh, coming in and taking over? Exactly. So the Weaver family, from their point of view, this was confirmation of everything they believed. This was a federal government that was uh, uh, Babylon. They were the enemy coming to... It was it was a fulfillment of their own prophecy. So they, they had absolutely no incentive to leave that cabin or cooperate in any way. And then, so it was the ATF and the FBI? The FBI came in only... The ATF was not involved... The ATF was initially involved in the, in the arrest, but once the marshals got the serv- uh, got the case, there was a shootout, unfortunately precipitated by the marshals getting a little too close to the cabin. Randy's son, Sammy, 14-year-old, was killed, and a, fe- and a U.S. marshal was killed. And once that happened, the FBI descended in force. Can't the Weavers uh, have claimed that they were just protecting their property? They didn't know who was encroaching on their home? The F- uh, sorry, excuse me. The Weavers did claim that. Um, the Weavers uh, in, in court later made the effective case that that's exactly what they were doing, and they were exonerated of any charges. So it was just simply a matter of miscommunication as far as the court saw it? It was a series of miscues, but there's, the one thing that's indisputable is that the FBI, in its own, which has since admitted this, the FBI completely re- overreacted to the situation. How many people wound up dying? All in all, there were three killed, uh, both uh, Randy's son, Sammy, the, the U.S. Marshal, and then, unfortunately, Vicki Weaver was, was shot by an FBI sniper. Let's talk about the Waco siege. Um, the, this is a branch Davidians. They weren't white supremacists. No, they weren't, um, although... They're often they're often sort of separated from the white supremacist movement, and that's that's true. They were not racist, but they they did share in common a deep distrust of the federal government, who they viewed as what they called Babylon, and a passion for guns. David Koresh, in particular, was adamant that that he could do anything he wanted with guns, turn them into automatic weapons, and this is what precipitated the ATF raid. So they were not completely blameless in the situation. And it was a matter of negotiations falling apart. Well, initially, again, a very clumsy decision. The ATF decided to raid the compound, knowing that it was full of arms and, and guns. The, uh, the Davidians were tipped off to the raid, and what ensued was a terrible shootout in which four federal agents were killed and five Davidians were killed. And again, at that point, the FBI took over and descended with force. How did extremist military um, militia groups react to the Waco siege and Ruby Ridge? Well, that's just the point. That's where the connection with McVeigh really happens, because it's in the reaction to these two events that you see the radical right exorcised and... Uh, energized by what's happened. and, and How are they vague. interpreting it? Because they, they the FBI is often seen as a, a positive force for the American right. Well, not this American right. I, I would call this outside the mainstream American right. The, these folks view any part of the federal government as uh, a, a, an existential threat to their own way of life. So they saw these two events as proof positive, as as, as absolutely exactly what they uh, have been talking about all this time. Which brings us to Timothy McVeigh. What was his upbringing like? McVeigh was was a fairly conventional, middle, uh, lower to middle class kid outside Buffalo, but he his family was sort of fell apart. Uh, his parents divorced in a very ugly divorce. He was estranged from both of them, really. And he, he developed this 
really attachment to guns, mostly his, through his grandfather, that became almost an obsession for him. And then he joined the military? Joined the military for that reason, so he could be around guns. And, and he was and involved in the Gulf War? He was. Was that a, a, a disillusioning experience for It him? was terribly disillusioning and traumatic. He he viewed it as an unjust war, and he viewed the federal government's role as, as sort of a bullying role in this. And he became, it was one step along the way of a kind of um, radicalization against the federal government. But why did he wind up choosing the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City? It doesn't seem to be part of this story. It was for him because it contained the offices of the ATF. And the ATF had, as I said before, been the agency responsible for raiding the Branch Davidian compound. So for him, that was reason enough to target it. He did look at other federal buildings, but it was particularly suited because it had the ATF uh, offices there. Another uh cause or another uh, inspiration you point out were the Turner Diaries, mm. uh, so, uh, books about a, an insurrection against the federal government. And again, this is another tie between McVeigh and the radical right movement. This is the Bible of the radical right movement in the 80s and 90s. And, and McVeigh not only read this book, he extolled it as the Bible. And it really has a blueprint for how to build a bomb and 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 to bomb a federal government, uh, federal building, and there's no question that that's where McVeigh got his idea. Why was the first reaction to the bombing that it had been done by Islamic terrorists? We just we we hadn't seen domestic terrorism like this yet. We'd we'd seen a few instances of the Lebanon Lebanon barracks bombing, the the embassies in in, in Africa. Whatever terrorism we'd seen at that point, there was an attempt, of course, as everyone knows, on the, on the World Trade Center here, but that was done by, by Middle Easterners. So there was just a, a kind of an assumption, uh, even in federal law enforcement, that it was Muslim terrorists. Uh, well, there had been the killing of uh, Alan Burke, the uh, radio talk show host, earlier. There was a talk about other uh, potential killings. There was a long list of potential victims. So are you surprised that domestic terrorists like McVeigh and Dylan Roof are rarely mentioned in the debates about the dangers of terrorist attacks? Well, at that time, that those domestic terrorist acts were very much under the radar. There was only one or two FBI agents assigned to these kinds of groups. But what was striking to me in doing the film was that so few made the connection of the date the date was April 19th, the same date as the fire. It was reporters who first made those connections and said, wait a minute, this has got to be the work of the radical right. Cloven Bundy goes to court, I think, today. Have extremist militia groups continued to grow in numbers since these events, now just using a different label, calling themselves the alt-right? That's what I understand. I'm not a, an expert on this, but those who are folks in the Southern Poverty Law Center have pointed out a sort of resurgence in these groups. They, they, they do wax and wane, and there was definitely a retrenchment after Oklahoma City. But for whatever reason, we can speculate, they seem to be gaining strength again. Barack Goodman, uh, the Oklahoma City film, Two Hours, is tonight, starts tonight at 9 o'clock. And then next Tuesday, we get Ruby Ridge, also at 9 o'clock on PBS stations. Barack, thank you so much for being on our show again. Great to be here. Thank you.
Finally, today, there is a new television series on BET called The Quad that seeks to give viewers a fresh, in some cases, raw look at life on the campus of a proud but struggling historically black university. And the star of the new show is from one who lives in the hearts of all who love Disney princesses. That is none other than Anika Noni Rose, the voice behind Princess Tiana, Disney's first black princess in The Princess and the Frog. And now seven years later, Anika Noni Rose is ruling the world around her again, this time as the newly elected president of the fictional Georgia A&M University. I'm Dr. Eva Fletcher, president of Georgia A&M University. As you consider your options for your continuing education, put GAMU at the top of your list. We caught up with Anika Noni Rose right before the quad premiere on BET last week, and I asked her what drew her to the role. I was really attracted to it because I think that it is um, a story that is not being told right now. We don't see a lot of college life right now on television, and we definitely don't see anything about HBCUs, which, for those who don't know, are, are historically black colleges and universities. I was attracted to this character. She is someone who is, uh, she's a New Englander. She is uh, Ivy League educated. She comes from money and privilege. And she has a scandal in her life that causes her to have to take a job in the South at an HBCU, which is something she knows nothing about. She's somebody who looks very, very well put together. And yet um, she's made some really bad choices. And so... There are cracks not far beneath the surface, which I find very interesting to explore. Is there anything painful about it? I mean, given that you attended uh, an HBCU, Florida A&M, FAMU, yes. and yes, there have been some cracks in the HBCU story as well. I mean, these are, as we know, institutions that have educated you know generations of people who've gone on to important uh, and prominent roles, and yet many of these institutions are struggling. So is there anything painful mm-hmm. about it as well? Well, I think that there are things that have been imposed upon HBCUs which which are painful. The fact that we are, when I say we, like I'm, I went to one, I didn't go to all of them. But, <laughs> um, you know, that we're often um, struggling for money because we're often state funded and the state is not as concerned about HBCUs as it is for other schools. So often we will lose money first. So those types of things happen. And I always find that disappointing and unfortunate because These are amazing institutions that gave opportunities to Martin Luther King, uh, amongst other people, George Washington Carver. You know, so there's been some myth that an HBCU is a choice that is lesser than somewhere else. And that is exactly what it is. It's a myth. It's a falsity. The series does not pull any punches about some of the administrative and cultural issues that have been very much discussed and have made it in the news about HBCUs. For example, um, I want to play a clip from where your character, Dr. Madam President, Eva Fletcher, is talking with the university's famed band director, Cecil Diamond, played by Ruben Santiago Hudson, who questions her HBCU bona fides. I want to give this a little bit more context. This scene comes Mm -hmm. after a student was hurt in a hazing incident by the band Mm -hmm. and is hospitalized. Those who follow such matters will remember that a student at FAMU back in 2011, a drum major, was killed in a, in a hazing incident that yes. became kind of national news. And anyway, let me just play this, this clip. She's in critical condition. You're getting the best medical care money can buy. I looked into some of your mishaps over the past five years. And what you find, that four mil a year I bring you? File an incident report by the end of the day. 
Why don't you hold your breath, Black Ivy? Oh, I get it. So you think, because I grew up in a wealthy family, attended Ivy League schools, and married well, that I'm not down, not black? My ability to survive and my intellect are both very black, Mr. Diamond. My point is simple. I don't answer to you, and I never will. My point is simple as well. You do as I asked you. There are some raw things in this series. For example, you know, the water gets turned off at one point because the universities can't pay its bills. Um, talk to me about that. Why do you think it's important to have these kinds of storylines on the quad? I think it's really important when we talk about showcasing a particular piece of culture that we don't dip it in sugar. I think if we're only showing one side of it, if we're only showing the elevated sections of it, then we aren't telling a truth. We aren't telling the story. Are there aspects of your experience that have found their way into the script? You know, it's funny. I did attend an HBCU, and I am from Connecticut, so I am a New Englander. You know, that is not a stretch. And my grandmother's from the South, so I was very familiar with the South and, and some Southern ways, but there were still things that I learned and were unfamiliar to me when I went for the first time to Tallahassee for an extended period of time. And sometimes it's just about people communicate differently, whether it's the spoken or unspoken communication. Did anybody question your blackness when you arrived coming from Connecticut as you did? Oh, my God. People questioned my blackness in Connecticut. I didn't have to leave the state for that. Mm. You know, it's it's something culturally that is very interesting. I grew up in the suburbs. You know, I come from professional parents. I spoke a particular type of English. And so consequently, that meant I thought I was cute. (laughs) So, you know, I was a nerd. I read a lot. I still read a lot. And somewhere along history, it became not cool to read. I don't know what that's about. But, you know, I know who I am. I, I was taught very clearly who I am. And Uh, I remember, you know, the first time somebody said something to me like that, I was really hurt by it. I was like, what what do you mean? I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at you. We are, you know, we are of a clan. But um, I don't know what that is. I, I just think it's so silly. And it's something that we have to find our way out of. That was Anika Noni Rose. She's starring in The Quad on BET. She was kind enough to join us from our studios at NPR West. Anika Noni Rose, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean. We're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country.
It's a follow-up to a story we first brought you yesterday. Now, in the video, the cheerleader spells and says the N-word, and it's important to note we have thoughtfully chosen not to show the video because it involves a minor and an offensive word we choose not to say or show. Now, since the video was released, we've received a lot of comments from you at home, including current Amarillo High students. KMR Local 4's Zach Martin spoke with a few of those students. Their reactions are our top story at 10. Emerald High students should not be acting that way. I was kind of just shell-shocked. I was kind of like amazed that someone would do that. This is the reaction both Eric Traves and Spencer Nichols had when they saw the now viral video of an Amarillo High School cheerleader using the N-word. The video is less than 10 seconds long, but has already garnered reaction from hundreds of people on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I was surprised someone would post that on social media. Emerson Solano, a senior at Amarillo High and a state volleyball champion for the Sandys, says her coaches continually remind her and the team they represent more than themselves, they represent their school. Me being a captain, I am definitely held to a super high standard and Coach Barker always talks about watch what you post, watch what you like. Everyone can see it. The students we spoke with were adamant this video shouldn't represent more than the people involved. It shouldn't represent the Emerald High School as a whole. You know, everyone makes mistakes. It just happened to be our school. It could have been any other school here in Amarillo. It's completely unfair that um, adults and other kids from other schools are throwing Amarillo High into a hole for one student's actions that um, doesn't represent every student at Amarillo High. It makes me kind of sick to my stomach to see that people just see one individual doing that and just by the fact that that individual is wearing an A on her chest that Amarillo High falls under that category. This is the second incident that has raised questions about racial insensitivity during this school year involving students at Amarillo High. Last fall, an Amarillo High student tweeted for other students to take tortillas to the game against Caprock High School, a predominantly Hispanic school. AISD officials say there was no word of students actually bringing tortillas to the game. People weren't there to see it with their own eyes, and it's really upsetting that people judge when they don't know the whole situation that happened. None of it was, none of it was on purpose to be, you know, I guess racist or anything. Nothing was planned. Amarillo Independent School District released a statement on the video. It says, in part, AISD students who choose to participate in extracurricular activities such as athletics and cheerleading are held to a higher standard for their behavior outside of the school day. It continued later with, AISD does not ever condone racist language or behavior. Reporting from the control room, Zach Martin. KAMR Local 4 News. Jordan. All right, Zach, thank you for your report tonight. Now, it's important to note we don't know anything else about the video, including the context in which it was recorded, why it was recorded, or how and why it got released. We have received many comments on social media about this topic. Here's a look at a few. Missy Engel Chambers says, in part, quote, although I do not condone her words, it does fall under free speech, whether we like it or not. Melanie Mason says, in part, quote, I think it's an idiot kid being that, a kid, probably a dare or stupid-like thing, but now her life is ruined due to social media. Santos Flores says, quote, unacceptable, period. And finally, Becky Cargill says she shouldn't be allowed to be a cheerleader anymore. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident 
and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service? Uh, no comment. To attenders outrage after a suburban high school student brings a highly offensive racist pamphlet to school and pictures of it spread on social media late this afternoon. Huntley High School officials are taking action tonight. Eyewitness News reporter Eric Hong is live in Huntley. Eric? Alan, that racist material wasn't just brought to school. Students say copies of the pamphlet were posted on several lockers for all to see. The pamphlet is so offensive, there isn't much of it we can show. The N-word is used almost every other sentence. African-Americans described as less than human. I was shocked. I never really did not think someone would have the confidence to bring that type of thing to our school. Dubem Anekamaru spoke to us with his parents and says he and a group of black students reported the racist material to school administrators. He says copies of the pamphlet, which appear to have been downloaded off the Internet, were posted on several lockers throughout Huntley High School. It was so, like, nonchalant, like a... Um, just like a smiley face sticker on the locker or anything. School administrators declined an on-camera interview, but told us they acted immediately after learning of the material. A male student now faces discipline. In this letter to parents, the principal of Huntley High School said these types of messages cause real pain and harm. They are unacceptable here. We must continue to work every day to fight the history of racism that continues to stain our society. It's 2017. Like, I'm hurt that people are still using these type of words, trying to um, dehumanize us and all those things. This is offending not just one race, but everyone, basically. Administrators declined to say what type of punishment the student faces, whether he'll be suspended or possibly even expelled. Live in Huntley, Eric Hong, ABC7 Eyewitness News. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. And no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. It's Desmond Cole, of course, In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. And uh, I wanted to start, uh, get something get something off of my chest to start off today. Um, because... I'm sure that many of you have heard this story that it came out in the last few days of last week, and it's a story out of um, a Mississauga school where a six-year-old girl um, had the police called on her after she was acting out inside of the classroom, and uh, the police came and they handcuffed this six-year-old girl by her wrists and by her ankles. That was the way that they decided to deal with that situation. Um, and there's been a lot of, I guess, what people would call debate about whether or not that was a good thing or an understandable or justifiable or reasonable thing to do. Um, it's not. We know that it's not justified to shackle a child because it's illegal. In fact, uh, I think the police are the only people who could do that and not be immediately arrested, interestingly enough. Uh, the debate about whether or not you can handcuff a child by their wrists and ankles is, I hope, long settled. But there was a lot of discussion um, around this this week as if there's still a really big debate to be had about this. Um, my colleagues Ryan uh, and Jay on The Rush here in the afternoons on News Talk 1010 every weekday from Monday to Friday from 4 to 7, they took this up. You know, I think that they were, uh, uh, all day we were talking about this story. And I listened very closely to some of the things that they 
had to say about what happened to the six-year-old girl. Um, some important things you should know. This girl had, uh, we understand, been suspended four times from her school before this incident. This girl has had the police called two other times to the school by the school officials of, I don't know if it's teachers, I don't know if it's the administration, but twice they've uh, before this incident they had also called the police to come respond to this girl. Um, this girl is black, and her mother did an interview with uh, City News, and you can see the back of her head, but she has concealed her identity. She's obviously scared about talking about this kind of thing publicly because a lot of people want to debate whether or not it was okay that this happened to her daughter. She's traumatized. Her her daughter is traumatized, obviously. I want to play you some of the conversation from Ryan and Jay's show. Um, Here's Ryan Doyle. Some things about this are troubling. I mean, you've got letters of suspension from the school that describe a child who punched a staff member, assaulted students in the class by kicking, hitting, and pulling their arms. Her mom says, listen, my daughter's never exhibited any of that kind of behavior outside of the school. That's a tough one for me to believe. I'm sorry, it just is. But perhaps, and I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, perhaps the school is a trigger. Maybe there is something that goes off when she's away from mom. Maybe there's a bit of that separation anxiety. So that's uh, Ryan Doyle saying that, you know, he's not sure he believes the mother saying that her daughter doesn't act like this outside of the school. He says it's possible that there's a trigger inside of the school, but the first thing he says is that he doesn't believe that that would be going on. Then he says, maybe there's a trigger. But of course, later on in the program, Ryan gives us some more information about the story that was not mentioned up front. And here's that information. Yeah, the child's father died when she was six months old. Her mother started having health problems as she began junior kindergarten, eventually being diagnosed with a form of cancer. Uh, she says that a social worker told her that her daughter may be having experience, uh, having experience with separation anxiety. Her mom also wonders if bullying at the school triggered the behavioral issues. So that's important. This young girl's father has passed away. Her mother is very, very ill. Um, a social worker has said that there's a lot of issues that are going on and that the family does need support. So why are, why are we discussing whether or not we believe this mom that's just talking about how her daughter is? Uh, but there's more about this from Ryan. He has some more concerns about the way that the mom is telling her own story. How I have to ask these questions because they're on my mind, Jay, and I'm just going to put them out there. At the age of six, how much do you tell your kid about a, a cancer diagnosis? I mean, that's a pretty heavy, weighty thing if you know the kid's dad died already. You know, I'm not questioning this person's parenting skills, but that said, that's a lot of information if you know your kid has a tendency to act out or has that separation anxiety because her father passed away. And it's such a tough... Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know what information we're basing that kind of comment on, uh, whether or not this woman has talked too much about these issues to her daughter... I don't know why that enters into the discussion here. And Ryan said, you know, I just, I feel like I need to put this out here. And I, and I heard that and I thought, I'm I'm not really sure why. Um, I mean, it goes on. Jay Michaels, who's uh, Ryan's colleague on the show here at News Talk 1010, also uh, weighing in on this. I'll let you hear some of the things that he had to say. 
When there's been two incidents where police have been to the school for your child, do you really think the first thing you should do is start doing TV interviews and talk about police brutality? Or do you really think what you should probably do is maybe worry about the safety of a very good kid? point. Very good point. Um, should they be doing interviews instead of worrying about the safety of their child? Running to the media to do interviews, said Jay Michaels. But I'm reading from the City News report here. It's a third paragraph. The incident happened at a Mississauga school in late September. Um, so it's not correct to say that this mom rushed to the media to get her story out before taking care of her daughter's safety because this happened more than four months ago now. Um, again, I, I think that there's a lot of extra conversation here going on about this that troubles me and confuses me. I just don't understand why these things are being brought into the conversation. Um, what was interesting to me, too, was that, you know, you guys remember me talking a couple of weeks about solitary confinement, and I had the Minister of uh, Community Safety and Correctional Services here, or sorry, Minister of Children and Youth Services, excuse me, Michael Cotto. We're talking about solitary confinement of young people. And so we have these conversations where is it okay to handcuff a six-year-old girl by her ankles and wrists? Is it okay to lock a child in a room by themselves for hours on hours on end? We have these conversations. Um, I, I'm surprised that we want to have conversations, whether these things are right or wrong, and we haven't decided. Because most people who do these things would go to jail. The average person who handcuffs a child or locks a child in a room by themselves at length, that's a criminal offense. So haven't we decided that this is wrong already? Why are we arguing about it? Um, but I find it fascinating because people act like the situation is new or unique, that it's never happened before. And we don't know what the options are in a situation like this. How else do you respond besides calling the police to a school and handcuffing a girl? So here's some of that conversation in terms of like, do we even know how to respond to this? What, what's the expectation? Yes, the cops outweigh the child. Mm -hmm. That's a given. Are we expecting physical force? Are we expecting that they get violent? Should they, they pick the girl up? I, I mean, we'd be having the same conversation if the cops decided to do any of those yeah, things. Yeah, if, if the cop had have decided to hold this child in a bear hug until the child had calmed down, it would have been exactly what we just heard that would have been talking about. about... Yeah. Um, do we use violence? You know, what, what are we talking about here? No, we don't use violence against children. And yes, if any police officer used violence against a child or picked up a child in that situation, people would be saying the same thing. The reason being that most people don't handle their children when their children are having a problem by calling the police and handcuffing them to their wrists and ankles. People solve issues with their children every day all over this country without doing that to a child. There are lots of people who are trained to do this. It seems that the police are not among them in this case, but the police should never have been called to a school for a six-year-old girl. That's the school's responsibility, and they failed. It's very unfortunate that the police had to come in in this situation, but they should have never been there in the first place. Their actions are justified after the fact, but I think we have to acknowledge that the police should never go to a school to handcuff a six-year-old girl. It's Black History Month, guys. I just want to be really straight with you because you know I talk about African liberation 
month rather than black history because we are not history we are still here and we hear the ways that we're being talked about in this country to this day we hear the reactions to our stories i have more on this when we come back you know we're going to keep talking about this but this is this is a lot for me because that handcuffing wrists and ankles of this black girl like this was the only way that she could be dealt with i feel that in my heart And for those of you who don't, for those of you for whom the response here is immediately to rationalize and justify or expound on this horrific treatment of a girl, you've got to get with it. This is not what we need. Not today and not going forward. Um, I mentioned that she is black. I want to read a quote from the lawyer of the mom. Uh, they are taking some legal action in the wake of this treatment of the six-year-old girl. Uh, and the lawyer, his name is uh, Donardo Jones. He said uh, that this, he believes, the underlying problem here is anti-Black racism. And so here's a quote from him. There's never, ever a situation where a six-year-old should be handcuffed. Never. He goes on to say, we see anti-black racism, we see it in the child welfare, we see it in the educational system, we see it in the criminal justice system, we see it all over. And what's particularly jarring to our moral conscience right now is that this level of anti-black racism is moving from something that impacts teenagers and adults right down to a little black girl, a little female girl, and that's extremely jarring. This is another lawyer, uh, Lavinia Latham, who said that second quote that I just read. the first one attributed to Donardo Jones. Uh, once again, some of my colleagues on this station had a different take on the folks that this happened to and whom, who they're representing, saying that this was about racism. So here's some of what they had to say. They made a judgment call. I don't believe that this has anything to do with the race card that's being played in this story. Interesting if you've just heard about this story for the first time today, Ryan. I think the moment you said the race card was being played in this story wouldn't have crossed my mind for even a second until you told me that it actually got played. It's just a kid who's acting out, and it's police and educators that are trying to control the situation. I don't think for a second they thought, oh, it's a black kid. Oh, it's a black yeah, kid, the, so let's get, get, the, the, cops get the cops out. out. It's hard not to feel bad. for a six-year-old girl who finds herself handcuffed. What we're having some issues with today is the fact that there was almost an immediate jump to the race card. People think that this is some aggressive the force race, that's race. coming in, and in the lawyer's case, to attack black children in the school. Right. Because they hate, yep, they hate black that, kids. Yep, that's what they'd have you believe. That's what they'd have us believe. Um, the race card. The race card. The race card is being played. It's the race card. I read those clips, uh, sorry, those quotes from the two lawyers. The lawyers of this family don't mention the race card. They talk about systemic racism in the school system, systemic racism in the education system, systemic racism in the prison system, and those things are all true. Um, I know people don't like it when we collect statistics about race, but that's because they don't want to have these conversations. The statistics about our education system, prison system, policing system, they're all pretty clear. This is, again, not really a debate much anymore, if it ever was one. I think the problem is that it's treated like it's a debate. Um, but they didn't say anything about the race card, those lawyers. Neither did the mom. Uh, they're not talking about playing a race card. They're not talking about 
whatever that means, does it mean, what does it mean? Trying to deceive people by bringing up race when it's not relevant? It's relevant to this mother. And it's relevant to all of the other black people that this happens to. If it's not relevant to you, that doesn't mean it's the race card. Um, more on this response to how the lawyers uh, were characterizing this from Ryan and Jay. Let's talk about the lawyer a little bit. Talk about putting gasoline on a fire. The mom's lawyer in this case saying that anti-black racism is the underlying cause of the trouble. Here's a quote from a lawyer, Donardo Jones. We see anti-black racism. We see it in child welfare. We see it in the educational system. We see it in the criminal justice system. We see it all over. And what's particularly jarring to our moral conscience right now is that this level of anti-black racism is moving yeah. from something that impacts teenagers and adults right down to a little black girl. A little black female girl on that is extremely jarring. There is not a shred of doubt in my mind that if this was a white kid, it would be the same result. Of course it kid, would be. Kid's going to be in cops. If it was an Indian kid, if it was a boy, if it was a girl. You just lose all credibility when you start to talk about the race card, when we're talking about a little girl who's obviously got uh, some emotional issues. You just lose all credibility with some people when you own your experience. They just stop listening to you. That's true. I wish it was else uh, otherwise, you know? That's unfortunately very true. Some people just ignore you when you start talking about your experiences with race. They really shouldn't. Uh, there was more reaction to the lawyer from Jay Michaels. I don't know. How do you take a situation like that and think, wow, how can I apply race to this issue? Yeah, how can I get, how can I get on TV? Let's make let's make it this. let's make it a, a black and white issue. It'll be great. When you're a cop, you can torment freely and see me valley, then seize the Audi, then beam proudly. Turn a routine traffic stop to your season finale. When you're a cop, you can shoot a motherfucker by the trailer park. Plenty evidence, sure defense will be razor sharp. Then turn around and taste a perp for a blazing perp. I'm a cop. New tonight, a sheriff in Kentucky is working to get to the bottom of a racially and religiously charged Facebook post. And we're learning today the post may have come from a Boyd County's deputy's personal page. Some may find the language used in this post to be offensive. Well, here's what it says. The Muslim holler monkey has been evicted. Now, him and his she-male need to get gone. An anonymous source sent us the screenshot of that post. The source tells us the post was a comment on a Facebook status about someone being evicted from their home. As News Channel 3's Blaine Carraher explains, right now the sheriff is working to verify the deputy actually wrote that post. This post on Facebook no longer exists. In fact, the entire profile of the person who made the comment has been deleted. An anonymous source sent a screenshot of the post to WSAZ and told us the post came from the personal Facebook page of someone meant to uphold the law. Before the Facebook page was deleted, the person had listed their profession as deputy with the Boyd County Sheriff's Department. The post has gotten mixed reaction. I surely think that all of us put stuff on there without thinking. It really kind of shocked me to see that a deputy would say something like that. One of the profile pictures from the account of the person who wrote the comment was graphic, and we cannot show it on air but it could be offensive to the Muslim community. WSAZ has decided to blur out the person's name because the Boyd County Sheriff is still internally investigating. In a statement, Sheriff Bobby Jack Woods says he does not condone the words in the post or any of the actions inferred by the words. He went on to say that he's verifying the authenticity of the post. If a deputy did indeed write it, he plans to take disciplinary action. Something discipline is necessary. In my opinion, I feel like there should be consequences to his actions. Others 
aren't so sure. Maybe an apology, take it down or whatever. Blaine Carraher, WSAZ News Channel 3, Boyd County. All right, thanks, Blaine. The Boyd County Sheriff tells us if disciplinary action is taken, the deputy would be subject for review by the Deputy Sheriff's Merit Board. She's my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. In this amateur video shot Thursday night by an eyewitness, four police officers can be seen beating up a young man with a truncheon in Aulnay-sous-Bois. The four men have been accused of seriously injuring the 22-year-old man seen in the video. The officers have been suspended while an investigation takes place. Residents point out the bloodstains at the site where the attack occurred. Here there are traces of his blood. And here in the back, that's where they brutalized him. There are no cameras here. After his arrest, the young man was taken to the hospital where he was operated on for injuries in the rectal area. He's still hospitalized. He's in a dreadful physical state. I have a hard time staying more than five minutes in his hospital room. I think any mother today would be terrified to find her son in such a state. But a police union representative defended his colleagues' actions. When they stopped him, it got out of hand. No video shows that our colleagues deliberately violated the person. Once again, we're talking about accidental actions and not violent acts. A response the young man's attorney says is unacceptable. We can't just say he was resisting arrest. That's the police union representative's version. It's completely indecent. It's a serious matter that needs answers. As news of what happened spread in Olney sous bois some vandalized bus stops in the city Sunday night. The town's mayor has appealed for calm. First, the far-right National Front leader Marine Le Pen has launched her bid to become the president of France. Speaking in the city of Lyon, she attacked globalization, Islamic fundamentalism, and the European Union. Le mondialisme économique et financier s'appuie sur une pseudo-expertise. Economic and financial globalization is based on pseudo-expertise, which never gives up in the face of evidence of its economic failure and the social devastation it causes. Countries are no longer nations. People are no more than mere populations. Our correspondent Johnny Diamond was listening to her speech. Well, I mean, this was a speech essentially about identity and French identity, and that was the core around which all the other ideas revolved. There was uh, a rejection, unsurprisingly, perhaps, of Islamic fundamentalism. There was criticism of Europe. There was talk about uh, deporting foreign criminals, about introducing a three-month national service for young people. There was also a lot of talk about economic patriotism of local economies, and which is code really for trade protectionism. And there was quite a lot of tilting against globalisation and the European Union. She said it's not about left and right, it's about patriotism and globalisation. And so this was about France reclaiming, in her eyes, its place in the world and rejecting its current place in the world, one which she clearly sees as rather enmeshed in 
too many multinational agreements, too many multinational organisations, too many compromises, unable to make its own way. She talked about sovereignty and secure borders. She talked about strengthening the police. It was a pretty uncompromising message, and it was one that went down very, very well with her supporters. And very much picking up on themes that have proved so popular with the referendum in Britain, with Donald Trump's election in America, with their rejection of globalisation and talk of Islamic terrorism, secure borders, sovereignty, those kind of things. Yes, she clearly feels these chime with the French electorate. And the Front National, which she leads, is fairly popular at the moment. In fact, if you believe the opinion polls, she is the most popular of the candidates for the presidency at the moment. That doesn't mean she'll win, because once she has progressed, as we think she will, into the second round, she will face only one opponent, around which the supposition is an anti-Le Pen coalition will coalesce. But that having been said, it is a sign of the disquiet in France that she is so popular and that this message she feels is the one she should deliver to launch her campaign because there was no sense that she was sort of moving to the centre or compromising her message. This was a firm, I think you could probably say, hardline message of her nationalist agenda. And if she did win against the odds, perhaps at this stage, would that be the end of the European Union? Yes, it would be over. It would be not only the end of the European Union, but it would be an astonishing moment for Europe. Johnny Diamond with me from Lyon. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 11th, 2017. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Uh, Feel free to dial in if you have thoughts, observations, if you have comments you want to share about the audio uh, segments that we just heard or any other events that took place over the last seven days. Feel free. Dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Before we get to uh, folks who dialed in who have questions, comments, observations, uh, number one, Cows is listener-supported counter-racist radio. Hit the blog if you would like to support the address racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Uh, when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, Drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address uh, for those who uh, sent out mail uh, previously. Uh, just moved uh, right at the beginning of the year. So we have a new mailing address. Uh, if you send anything, uh, just make sure you double check to make sure you have the correct 
current address already changed on uh, Amazon for folks who have supported, got anything from the uh, Amazon wish list, uh, which is under Gus T. Renegade. Address is already uh, current there, so you can feel free if you uh, support Invest uh, just by nabbing uh, things off of our wish list. Uh, but again, thanks to everyone who has invested, supported. Uh, we are just a matter of days from our eight-year anniversary, uh, nearly a decade of uh, broadcasting, delivering counter-racist radio material. Hopefully, uh, we have helped some folks get a better understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. That's it. A few things uh, to touch on. Uh, before we get started, one of the easy ways that you can support uh, any of the reports, articles uh, that uh, Gus gets published, uh, wherever they happen to be, Atlanta Black Star, anywhere else, uh, you can share, comment, like. Uh, it is very difficult for a black author, not just Gus T. Renegade, but I've heard this from numerous uh, black authors, particularly if you're trying to write about uh, racism. I heard this with Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing talking about getting his book published. I've heard this from ta Coates. Uh, I've heard this from a number of all. We've had a plethora of black authors on who have said the exact same thing. It is very, very tough if you are a black author and you're attempting to write about racism. That's book, essay, whatever it is, uh, news articles, whatever it is, it's going to be challenging. Uh, always appreciate the folks who share, uh, comment, like uh, that definitely helps uh, when you uh, get people who share the content uh, when you are a writer, particularly writing about racism. Uh, that's it. A few things I wanted to touch on uh, before we get started. Uh, number one, I did speak uh, with Pam. I called her a few times and, and emailed. Uh, she's doing better and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get her back on the program uh, this month. Uh, I did Make sure to let her know that lots of folks had emailed and commented and wrote on uh, our Facebook page and what have you just to express their concern and well wishes, hoping that she recuperates uh, extra fast so we can get her back on the program and hear some more of her views, uh, suggestions on what we can do to solve the problem of racism. Uh, but I did speak to her this week and looking forward to uh, staying in touch, hoping that uh, she is right as rain immediately. Uh, next up. Uh, Sabrina Johnson, uh, if folks recall, she was a guest on the program uh, last year. She was really close to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. We had her on the uh, on the broadcast, uh, I believe, right uh, in the early part of spring. We talked about uh, Donald Trump's campaign and uh, some of her years of experience, uh, some of the things she heard with Dr. Welsing. Uh, she is organizing, she and others, uh, they have an event planned. Uh, it's commemor uh, commemoration and call to action in honor of Dr. Welsing. Uh, there will also be a birthday tribute to her, and they are contemplating fundraising components. Uh, this right now is scheduled for Saturday, March 18th, which is very close to Dr. Welsing's birthday, at 7 p.m., at the Thurgood Marshall Center in Washington, D.C. Again, uh, this is scheduled for Saturday, March 18th, 7 p.m., Washington, D.C. This is at the Thurgood Marshall Center. Uh, you can contact uh, Ms. Johnson directly if you want to get 
more details. As I find out more information, I'll pass it along. But I do know we have folks that are in the D.C. area and or folks who would be willing to travel uh, for this event. So, uh, again, you can contact Miss uh, Sabrina Johnson directly. Her email is Sabrina Johnson 27 at earthlink.net. Sabrina Johnson 27 at earthlink.net. Uh, you can email her to get more uh, information or details if they have uh, flyers or anything else uh, about this event coming up to uh, pay tribute to the late grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Next, uh, there was a report. I think uh, some folks shared this as well. Definitely reminds me of uh, the late Vincent Woodard. Uh, author of The Delectable Negro, which we are reading, had a really great session yesterday. I think it, it reminded me of medical apartheid in many ways, but uh, in one way it was kind of difficult material, hearing all of the terrorism that black people have been subjected to, but it was a lot of, uh, I thought, just extremely well-presented uh, information and just giving a really uh, accurate depiction of what it means to be white. But at any rate, in Delectable Negro, uh, he talked about yesterday and at the very beginning of the book how food was used as a weapon by white enslavers, uh, not allowing uh, black people to eat or giving them poor quality food or just starving them completely or doing the Jeffrey Dahmer and, and eating the Negras. But uh, there was an, an article on Frederick Douglass, uh, titled Frederick Douglass on how slave owners used food as a weapon. And I suspect that the person who uh, wrote this report might have read uh, Vincent Woodard's text because he uses some of these exact same sources. He has uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography and writings from Harriet Jacobs and Alato Equiano uh, talking about, you know, how they would starve uh, the slaves and punish them if they stole, you know, a piece of bacon or an apple uh, or anything uh, on the plantation. But specifically uh, in the report, it reads, it was a form of bread and circus, says Opie. Slaves were also given intoxicated drinks, so they would have little time to think of escaping. If you didn't take it, you were considered ungrateful. It was a form of social control. I thought that was extremely important, and the Opie that was being referenced, uh, this is Frederick Douglass Opie. He's a professor of history at Babson College, uh, who is of course, named after Frederick Douglass. But yeah, I thought that was a great observation. It reminded me, number one, of The Half Has Never Been Told, Edward Baptist, uh, also from our book club, uh, right at the beginning of 2016, where he had the exact same information included uh, that white terrorists, they would give alcohol to enslaved black people to keep down insurrections, rebellions. You can't uh, walk as steady, so you probably have a difficult time trying to run away or fight off uh, racists if you were going to plan some sort of insurrection so that you could then uh, escape your enslaved uh, condition. It reminded me of that. And then, of course, it reminded me of that moron that says regularly sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy uh, came to mind immediately. I think that certainly still uh, would be the best policy for us. 2017, uh, just a more modern form of the plantation. Right on. Uh, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and transition, see if we can get to some of the folks who dialed in. Uh, 
if you could take about five minutes uh, to share whatever thoughts, observations you have, that would be great. Uh, just for the compensatory call in, uh, we ask if you could not use metaphors. Uh, I don't make this request on any other program. I've stated, you know, a lot of times we talk about counter racism, white supremacy, white people. They will use analogies or metaphors, similes. They'll make these comparisons where they are equating two things that are not similar. They're not even close to being related. They will do this on a regular time. It's a form of racism. It's what master deceivers do. It causes tremendous confusion uh, when you are saying that there is a relationship or a similarity between two greatly uh, dissimilar items, concepts. Victims frequently, we're not doing this intentionally to be deceptive uh, most of the time, I think. I think a lot of times just we are still learning. We have not come to conclusions uh, on all of our ideas about counter racism or racism. We're still thinking. Uh, and so sometimes I think we just we employ metaphors uh, to try to articulate our views, how we're thinking, hoping that it will clarify what we mean in our statements. And frequently, that is just not the case. Uh, the use of, of the metaphors and cliches and analogies and things, it does not uh, <laughs> help people get a more accurate understanding. It just frequently contributes a lot of misunderstanding, lack of clarity, confusion for this broadcast. If we could just be explicit, right to the point, no metaphors, that would be great. I will prompt about that. Metaphors have come up a lot in the delectable Negro as well. Anywho, if you know you're in a loud uh, environment, if you could watch the background noise, that would be uh, appreciated as well. Use your mute button and that way uh, we can get your comments when you need to speak. And then other people won't have any distortion uh, while they are trying to share on the line. That's it. Uh, first few people who dialed in who have a hand up. Line should be open. If you have comments you would like to share, feel free. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Gus. Uh, evening to all the callers on the line. Uh, this is Kendra. Um, I would just like to comment on the article uh, Gus wrote and uh, that he briefly spoke about as well. Uh, that's also posted on his uh, Facebook page um, titled Ape Depictions Continue Long Legacy of white denying black people's humanity to justified white supremacy. Uh, first and foremost, Gus, it's an amazing, amazing um, informative article. I read it at about, I think, uh, 9.30 this morning, and it just uh, stayed on my mind um, throughout my, uh, my day. Um, the connotation of a gorilla being taken from the jungles of Africa in shackles, placed on a boat to America, mirrored no other group of people um, but us, you know, black folks, black people. I never placed uh, the two together um, until the article so brilliantly uh, broke it down for me. Um, I always wondered uh, why white people are so enamored, you know, with these gorilla um, uh, chimp movies. Uh, well, there it was for me, you know. I was able to, uh, to gain a greater understanding of why that was. Um, whites are very, I think, systematic with everything that they do. Uh, their genetic survival is, is predicated uh, on being systematic uh, in every way possible. Uh, so to frame black people as, um, as feeble-minded, uh, simpletons uh, with animalistic behaviors, you know, helps fuel that image. 
of whites being superior in all facets. And so uh, in white people's mind, um, I think they have to hone us in or we would just run wild. Um, the New York Post printing a cartoon image of a chimp uh, being shot by, by white police officers while one of the officers, I think, uh, was saying something like, um, I think they will have to find someone else to write the next uh, stimulus bill, which for me is just a clear, tacky, terroristic way of identifying uh, former President Obama you know, as an animal, uh, not worthy of human life. And I think from some of the reports that we've listened to earlier, um, that, was, that seemed to be a theme. Um, and Mr. Obama um, being a Harvard, um, Columbia-educated male, you know, since whites are so proud of their uh, elite, higher, you know, academic, uh, educational institutions, you would have thought um, whites would have just a tiny, not, not much, just a tiny bit more respect uh, for Mr. Obama which is um, another clear indication, um, academic uh, prowess when it comes to, to black people uh, means nothing uh, to, to white people. And to hear um, Genevieve uh, Benjamin speak on how she, uh, she was glad to see the Obamas out of the White House, you know, after being so excited um, in a way of uh, Mr. Obama's presidency. You know, I'm sure as a 77-year-old uh, black female, who was around uh, during uh, Jim Crow and I'm sure the civil rights movement, you know, she's very familiar with the tactics um, used against the Obamas. Um, she was able to see how detrimental, you know, that, that was to the Obamas' well-being and was just glad to see them um, get out of that, uh, that direct environment, like uh, I'm sure a lot of us are. Uh, that's it, Gus. Thank you very much. I appreciate that opportunity to speak. Appreciate that. Um, the black female that she mentioned, the 77-year-old 70, uh, uh, Ms. Genevieve, she uh, is here in Washington State. This was uh, reported in the Seattle Times, I think, the, the weekend that President Trump was inaugurated, and it was on the front page, had a big picture of, and they talked to a lot of uh, elderly black people. And... Uh, that was like the lead paragraph where she was talking about she was glad to see him go. She was happy that they were elected and cried and everything, but she was glad to see him go because it had been just eight years of portraying them as monkeys and all this, these racist attacks. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was reading the newspaper, Dr. Welsing. Other folks we haven't heard from? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to the other callers and the listeners. Um, yeah, this was a good program as usual. Um, I missed a portion of the beginning, but I did get to hear, I would say, probably at least the last, like, 30 to 40 minutes. But I wanted to touch on, uh, there was a clip you played about um, about someone who, I guess a white cheerleader, that had uh, used the word nigger in some capacity. And um, they had, well, actually, they, it was at a school where that came to be the case, and they interviewed a white cheerleader during the clip, and she had actually said that, they, that uh, she and others were told to watch what they say, watch what they post online, et cetera. And um, it was just interesting because they had all these white people uh, that they brought out to 
basically uh, speak against what transpired at the school. But in reality, when she was discussing the warnings that and admonitions they were being given by the white faculty, they were basically being told to be refined and to watch what they post and whatnot so that situations like the one that was being reported didn't take place. So white people uh, in, at a very young age are being taught to be more refined, and that to me was a good example of, of how that happens. Um, the clip where you played the handcuffing of the uh, six-year-old black girl is just totally, totally atrocious. Um, that would never be have been done to a white child whatsoever. Um, of course, we know in this system that black children are not seen as children. They're not treated as children. They're treated as monstrous adults that are going to do horrendous things if they're not contained and controlled by some sort of rabid animal. And I can't imagine how traumatizing that must be for a six-year-old child who lost her father. Her mom is is probably uh, extremely ill, God forbid, deathly ill with um with cancer, and and then she's going to be put in a situation where she's treated like some sort of common criminal. Um, it's just 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 horrendous for that young that young that young girl, and I just hope that she um is able to uh, get some sort of uh, mental help just to help her deal with the trauma of having to go through that and just being terrorized by these white psychotic beasts that run the school that she's in. And um, uh, lastly, there was something a, a word that came up in the text yesterday for direct, delectable Negro that I hadn't seen in such a long time that I actually had to look up the word. It was called deracinate, D-E-R-A-C-I-N-A-T-E. And when I looked it up, it says that it's, uh, it, it means, uh, the first meaning means to uproot, and the second meaning means to remove or separate from a native environment or culture, especially to remove the racial or ethnic characteristics or influences from. And to me, that second meaning is exactly what black people have been experiencing from our first encounters with uh, white supremacists is that is exactly what they've done, they've removed us from our native environment, and they've basically stripped us of all our race, racial and ethnic characteristics, replacing it with anti-blackness and just the, the heaviest dose and infusion of white supremacy that white people can give us. And that, to me, that word stood out just um, in, in, in a very powerful way after yesterday's reading. And I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you very much, Gus. A great show, and um, I'll meet my line. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, uh, and the rest of the callers and the listeners on the line. <clears throat> it's Rob in Milwaukee. Um, great clips uh, this week. Um, I think the sequence of the clips was really good. Um I like the uh the ghetto boys uh gangster song um followed by the uh CeeLo White Power and um seems this week uh to me that the uh the white male um is standing out and um the um reign of terror um, that he gets to uh, put out um, basically um, just running rampant um, that might have been a metaphor but uh, I think Rain the Terror was a metaphor too but uh, the white male um, the behavior that the white male is displaying um, is really uh, standing out to me um, and uh, 
in the words of Fuller, um, keep them squatters on the move. And um, shout out to Gus, uh, closing in on eight years um, in this system of white supremacy um, where it's not a lot of things that's for certain, um, not a lot of things that uh, black people can depend on. Um, the program <clears throat> has been here. Um, and um, while I don't have a lot of things to look forward to, um, I know that <clears throat> for the time that I <clears throat> have been tuning in, um, the cows have been dependable for me, and um, it has been helping me um, deal with um, and navigate, um, deal with and move through uh, my reality. Um, shout out to Scotty Reed as well, and um, really uh, want to thank the participants, um, the regular callers, um, week to week. Um, people um, have been here um, showing up, and uh, I really appreciate that. And uh, if I have a chance to chime in later on, I will. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. Right on. Can I be heard? Hi, Mr. Reed. Yes, Amy, we can hear you. I'm sorry, I can wait if you were going to speak. Nope, I got my greeting in to Mr. Reed, and uh, my thank you. Okay. I wanted to chime in after that caller because I agree. I'm very grateful for the dependability of the cows, and um, I feel the exact same way. There's not that much that I have to look forward to, but I eagerly anticipate being able to tune into the cows. So I um, wanted to second what the previous caller just said. Rob in Milwaukee, I wanted to second what you said. There were a couple of things I wanted to talk about regarding the clips. And the first one being about the health care. I'm happy, I'm always happy when you include things about health care and science, um, just because if not, I'm not even sure when I would come across this information, honestly. And I've been given that considerable thought about how our health is uh, taken into consideration under a system of racism and white supremacy. And in my, like, studies and stuff, I'm able to really discern, like, studies are not conducted on us to find what's effective to help us. I know this isn't particular to the clip, but um, these things are done with white people in mind to benefit white people, even though we might be included, that might just be in terms of fulfilling some type of, like, quota for an in-sample population of that you could test the medication on and stuff like that. But if we could ever dedicate healers and doctors and pharmacists and all of that specifically developing um, methods to treat disease and illness only or specifically for highly melanated people, specifically black people, that would be wonderful because I think there's an entire world of treatment possibilities for us um, that are particular to us because we cannot deny like the reality of melanin as a molecule that is dominant in us but not in other people. So there's so many things that we can do, but that whole thing is closed to us because we're not in that, in that sphere. The other thing I wanted to mention is, um, and I, I want to specifically mention this because I've become slightly frustrated when 
so-called articulate uh, or eloquent black people claim to not understand what that is about when we ha- we are, you know, met with other people who will, like, call us out on that or say something about that or say we sound white or anything like that. And I think it's just another way that we act like we're special, maybe the same way that people who have a white parent or who are fair-skinned or lighter-skinned will, you know, act like they don't understand why they're being mistreated or feel like they're being mistreated by other black people. I, I you know, reject that. I think that anybody who's uh, so-called educated and articulate and they're black, they know exactly what it's about. And um, instead of being like, well, you know, playing any type of victim role, and I'm speaking from personal experience, I think it's more empowering to admit what it is and then say that it doesn't mean anything. means I'm a, they call me an N-word just like they would call you if you don't speak the same type of English or whatever the way I do. We're all N-words in their eyes, and which means that we're all not human. So it doesn't matter. I'm not special, whatever. It just means I read a couple more books. And I paid this, that's it, you know what I mean, instead of making it something. Which brings me to the last thing that I'm going to say, because I struggle with this on a regular basis. But um, it's not that I'm not seen as a woman. It's that I'm not seen as a human being. And that is what that clip about the little girl being uh, shackled to her chair or, I mean, her hands and her feet were shackled. I'm not sure if it was in the chair. That might be incorrect. But the reason that there's a conversation around that is because who we are in most people's minds, most white people and most non-white, non-black people is not human. We are animals and barbaric and uncivilized. And um, so that's what people think, that's how they think we should be treated, that we don't deserve compassion or consideration or to be placed in a context whatsoever. And I struggle with that. Um, because it hurts every time that I have to accept that, that that's true. When people see me, they're not looking. Screw a woman, you know what I'm saying? Like, I want that really badly, like, see me as a woman, but people aren't even seeing me as a human being. Thank you, and that's all I wanted to say. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, howdy doody, everybody. It's uh, Ken Steele, and I'm in uh, Orange County, uh, California tonight. And um, I wanted to focus on uh, the eighth area of activity um, because I noticed there were just a a number of articles this week um, that were being published uh, that definitely addressed um, this situation. Um, First, uh, there was an observation that I made on a previous broadcast um, that uh, I think Neely Fuller uh, is correct in that uh, there will be um, a massive uh, uh, movement away from uh, seeing uh, the um, whole smattering of uh, uh, acronyms that can be used to uh, describe one's sexuality um, by the uh, white supremacists and an article was recently published that um, kind of gives uh, lends credence to that um, observation. Um, It's called, uh, I'm a gay New Yorker and I'm coming out as a conservative. And this is in the New York post. 
And uh, the article is written by, uh, I guess, a homosexual uh, suspected white supremacist named Chadwick Moore. And uh, in the article, he uh, identifies himself as a homosexual that was uh, interviewing another, um, I guess, uh, homosexual named Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever. And that guy is another uh, conservative that is, I guess, anti-LGBT, but he is a, a person who describes himself as a homosexual. So this is, uh, there's this movement away from seeing one's uh, sexuality as a, a political identifier amongst the white supremacists. And I think that that is just, uh, uh, it lends credence to that point that, um, Neely Fuller uh, made, and I think that LGBT will eventually become something for uh, non-white people, specifically black people. I think that that is just an ideology that will be uh, shown as uh, something for um, the Negros, as they say. And uh, what else? Um, there was an article recently published in I think Red Book magazine, um, and it's called I Am HIV Positive, This Is What It's Like to Date. And uh, it's an article written by, uh, I guess, uh, some 30-something um, white woman uh, who uh, I guess is, um, I'm suspecting uh, that she's a racist as well. Um, this person, she identifies herself as somebody who has, uh, was engaging in uh, sex with over 100 people, 100 men throughout her 20s in college in Rome, Italy, where I lived for five years, and in New York City upon my return. Uh, that, then she um, identifies that she was in a relationship when she found out that uh, she had um, uh, HIV, and uh, she continued to be in that relationship for um, under a year. But it just was very interesting to me because she identifies herself as, uh, uh, you know, her experiences dating while having HIV. And in some of these uh, situations, she admits to not telling people uh, that she has HIV. And she also identifies herself as having an undetectable amount of HIV, meaning that it's not detectable, uh, her viral load is not detectable in lab tests. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how were you found out to have HIV in the first place if you have an undetectable load? And this is something that I made uh, notice of uh, when Charlie Sheen was announced to have HIV he identified himself as having an undetectable viral load. And I've made the observation that the undetectable viral load version of HIV is the white version of saying, I don't have AIDS, but I have AIDS, and, or HIV, rather. And um, there's just an undercurrent uh, throughout this article. I implore you to um, take the time to read it, uh, that check this out, it, it, there's an undercurrent of I don't have HIV throughout the whole article. There is an, an undercurrent of 
HIV doesn't happen to me because I'm a white woman. And I'm just, uh, I don't know, this, uh, this article is uh, very revealing. I, I, I suggest you guys read it. And then finally, um, there's an article that was recently published, and I believe it was The Atlantic. Um, Ten seconds? It was, okay. It was basically, or sorry, it's, uh, um, okay. Uh, it basically says, we can't prove that, uh, children, that sex with children does them harm, um, says Labor Link NTLL. Uh, so that's something for UK Thank people you, uh, to explore. Thank you kindly. Uh, we should have time if you want to come back and, and share more details or give us more information about that last article once everybody gets opportunity to share. Uh, other folks we haven't heard from? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I wanted to touch on, I think it was a part of the audio segment where they was talking about some school students, I think it was a high school, to where they, I guess, were going to plan to bring some tortillas, I guess, to a game, maybe like a basketball game. And uh, I remember hearing, I guess they were, um, like, interviewing or getting commentary from some of the students. And it seemed like it's, like, a pattern of where they say, well, well, we can't really let, like, one or two students say that it's the whole school and it's this school and it's that school. And one of the, I think it was the white male, that might have been a white male that said, well, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the plan. He said that word plan, so... <laughs> I don't know if he was trying to constantly um, increase that refinement while uh, saying, um, well, you know, it was just, I don't know if he said it was a joke. He was trying to, in, in my view, keep it, keep away from saying that it was racist, basically. He said it was not racist, but then described it was other things. So um, it's it's amazing how at that young age they, are beginning to learn more and more, and uh, there was a there was another article that I had read that this was also going on at another school. I think it was in Pittsburgh, I believe, or in the Pittsburgh area, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, and uh, they were doing more chants and holding up Trump Trump signs, and the campaign is over, so still like a lot of dedication going on um, to be expected. And it was interesting to hear about the uh, Clive and Bundy segment. And uh, I didn't know it was going on that long, and it'll be interesting to hear another update on that. And uh, that's pretty much all I can think of now. And uh, thanks for allowing me to share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, two things. Uh, number one, uh, the uh, the program about uh, I guess it's a series about historical black colleges. Uh, I have had experiences uh, with uh, the colleges as a student and a student athlete, uh, so I have some experiences on it. 
uh, I don't I don't see anything constructive ultimately coming coming out of it. Uh, it may attract it may attract uh, uh, some students to uh, attend the colleges, but uh, I, I I don't see that happening with uh, the uh, institutions that are predominantly white. I know I know I, I at least I haven't. Maybe somebody could tell me something different. Uh, I'm aware of the real life drama that takes place at colleges, and that means all of them. Uh, but it seems as though in order to promote historical black colleges, uh, it seems as though that you have to have uh, a whole lot of uh, negativity exposed. And uh, I, don't see, I don't see any, any constructive purpose uh, for doing so. Uh, there are so many other constructive things that uh, that could be done to uh, for a uh, to attract or and or introduce a person to attend a college that is uh, attended by predominantly a lot of non-white black people. Uh, uh, I'm down here in uh, the South Florida area, Miami Gardens to be exact. Uh, lately, uh, because of the uh, stepped-up uh, infiltration of firearms, just like any other area within the known universe where non-white black people are concentrated at, uh, being that it's already is an unstable environment due to the system of race of white supremacy, uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, a lack of love for self and therefore for others, of course, it's going to be chaos uh, as far as from a uh, standpoint of uh, research, normally what takes place, it gets worse and worse and worse, and then the people who can leave out will eventually leave out because there's some other purpose that the races have for that area. It's happened all over the world, as far as I know, the displacement. And uh, I can see something like that happening uh, down here uh, bec and, you know, in other places also, uh, being that uh, the where I stay at the stadium, the Dolphin Stadium is there. I'm pretty sure there's some other, quote-unquote, investors, uh, white people uh, with money, uh, will be glad to... Uh, come into the area and also bring people that are willing to spend money also that may take the place of the people leaving out. I don't have any plans myself, uh, but uh, just a thought on the recent uh, violence that's been going on. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, the host, the callers, and the listeners. I wanted to uh, speak about a lot of people. Well, I, I hear almost all black people question whether an action of the ice albinos or of the white people are racist or not. And I just want to say that all of their actions are racist. Uh, every one of them, 
they're all combined in order to kill black people. And I just, I wanted to say that. Um, oftentimes I see uh, ice albinos, like pictures of them uh, in different uh, different countries. And they would have, they killed all the parents of these non-white people. And then I'll see another picture and they're handing candy to the children. Well, I would say handing candy to the children is still a racist act. It's still a criminal act. Um, and so if, if the overall goal of the existence of the, these people, and I say the overall goal of the existence of these people, the ice albinos, the overall goal is to kill black people, if that's your overall goal, that that in itself is a criminal act. But everything you do and before you get to actually killing black people, everything you do is a criminal act. Even breathing would be a criminal act. Even while they're sleeping, they're only sleeping in order to rest enough to wake up to go to war with us again the next morning. So even their rest was a criminal act or a racist act. And I wanted to say, just remind people um, that these terms are the terms that are synonymous. Uh, white is synonymous with racist, which is synonymous with racism, white supremacy. It all means kill black people, and it all means war against black people. Uh, that, that was the main thing that I, I just wanted to just add in. Um, but I do, I do understand, I completely understand, um, even I trying to question, trying to figure out, you know, which action is worse than, than another action that um, one of these creatures, one of these ice albinos may be um, perpetrating against us. Uh, and that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Can I be here? Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Thanks. Good evening to everyone and you. Um, I wanted to comment on some of the clips. Uh, like one of them, the um, the police or the sheriff or whomever that had wrote the um, the um, the uh, racist Facebook post and then deleted his whole page, but someone screenshotted it and how they um, always acted, oh, well, we don't know, we don't can't prove it was his, but if it was us, it, it would have been, oh, that was ridiculous, we're not tolerating that, and we're going to take stern action, it's suspended. It's, I just noticed that every time they do anything, they just def- automatically defend the police, right or wrong. Just like with the uh, little um, six-year-old girl that they called, the, the school called the police on because she's a problem child and had an issue at school. But when they were trying to break it down to maybe why she's having these issues, that wasn't of a concern. No one, oh, her dad, six months, she didn't know him. I mean, it's just like they don't, they don't have the same compassion for our trauma or the trauma with our children, but with Timothy McVeigh, they did this whole breakdown of, oh, well, no, he's middle-class poor, and, oh, his parents died, mom died, the divorce, and just did all this stuff, and granddad, and then introduced him to guns, and he was the military, all this stuff. They just, they make it so clean for them, but, but not for us. And then, now, when they go to high school, 
they make these little statements and act racist and say racist things, do racist things, have racist activities, and then when they're caught, like, hey, just one person, you're going to hold all of us accountable for just one person. It's always that with every incident in these high school, junior high schools, elementary schools, it's always when they're the victim, it's always they kind of deflect off of it or make it seem as if, oh, that's just one, you're not going to blame all of us for just one incident. Everything is only one incident with them. And that's about it. Yeah. Oh, the, um, those historical black colleges, I went to, um, I was helping my, well, I was helping my son. I was sitting with my son as he was going through all these different colleges because I guess he's trying to select a college to go to. And um, we're looking at the graduation rate um, on time graduating. And a lot of those um, black colleges, oh, their graduation rates are so low. And um, as far as graduating on time, if they do at all, and then with the funding and then all of the activities, uh, like the uh, what are those, fraternities and sororities, they're just so terrible. So I wouldn't want my child to go to one of those colleges because it's, I just, it just seems like it would be a distraction from his education at one of those colleges because you would literally have to jump into one of these um, activities or events and then all the partying. It's not like they don't have them at the white colleges, but they're really not interested in you coming to them. So versus the black ones, they we just tend to have a lot of fun. <laughs> so I just wouldn't want them to be distracted in any of those colleges. And the fact that they said something about the water going off, so that means there's a, the funding, they get that last. So that's all I wanted to discuss. And thank you for taking my call, and I'll meet my line. Sure. Just a quick update. The uh, <clears throat> The sheriff that was accused of posting which this that uh, the she male uh, is out and the, the holler I forgot the whole phrasing of it but um, oh I got it right in front of me the Muslim holler monkey has been evicted speaking of my article on monkeys uh, and now him and his she male need to get gone I think he was talking about the Obamas but they say that this officer has received a the maximum punishment for this offense which is 24 days without pay. Suspension, 24 days without pay. And that is the maximum offense, or excuse me, punishment uh, for this offense. That's what's going down in Kentucky. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from have commentary. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, uh, Gus, and to the callers and listeners. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit uh, about the uh, clip about the girl that was handcuffed or um, arrested or the police was called on her. It was really interesting hearing that. I um, work in an attorney's office, and I was talking to one of the um, white attorneys, and he has a, I think his son, he said, is like five or six years old, and he was just <clears throat> kind of talking about how uh, the the school keeps calling um, him and his wife about his son acting out in class and 
they're, you know, trying to suspend him. He's white. Um, I guess, I don't know if he called himself Jewish or not, but I think his wife is, you know, classifies as Jewish. But um, at any rate, um, it was interesting because white people, they make up all, they, they make up these diagnoses. And he said that his son has, it's called PANDAS. And it stands for pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strepto something infections. So they come up with all these terms and these diagnoses for what their children have. And when I said, well, what is that? Well, what is your son doing? He's like, well, he's acting out in class. He, you know, he's hitting other students. Um, I live in Detroit, and so it was like we had a real bad snowstorm a couple weeks ago, and so the children had went outside, and I guess uh, his son picked up a snowball and was throwing it and hit one of the uh, other little girls in the class in the face, and they, they he, you know, he was uh, just acting out. He started growling. Um, he, they finally got the little boy in the class, and. He was taking the socks off of some of the other students. I mean, just totally acting insane. And so all the things that he described, I'm like, okay, well, he didn't get arrested. They didn't call the police on him. They didn't uh, handcuff him. All these things that I heard that was, you know, being done to this uh, black student, it's just interesting because then he's like, well, and he was really, he was upset. He's like, I'm writing letters to the school. My child has pandas and pandas this and pandas that. And I'm like, what is pandas? And it was just interesting how they, you know, make up these, they they diagnose their their own children and just come up with all this stuff. But yet still, when it's a non-white child, they will arrest them and, treat our children, you know, as not human. So I just thought that was interesting to have that conversation with um, with him in the office. And then I uh, just appreciated, uh, there was a couple um, calls back that someone suggested going back in the archives and, re- and listening to when we had the book study session on the Turner Diaries. And I read the book, and I just... I'm on the last um, reading segment. Actually, I think I'm getting ready to finish it on either Monday or Tuesday, but it's it's really interesting just reading the Turner Diaries because I'm like, wow, Donald Trump, in my opinion, that's his. That's definitely his Bible, and, and the things that, you know, he's doing and the things that uh, is happening today, it's, it's really interesting because um, I had never um, – heard of the Turner Diaries. I mean, my in my ignorance, I didn't know what that was. And by me uh, being a part of this program, it's really shed light on what, you know, what white people are reading and what they are internalizing and the things that, I mean, my goodness. And just for you to have that clip uh, today when they were talking about Timothy McVeigh and, you know, how he, you know, blew up the, the federal building. I'm like, wow, that's absolutely just like out of the Turner Diary. So I just appreciate um, the art. Um, there's so much that uh, it's just a wealth of information there that that 
you know, on the information that, well, I guess that's a metaphor, my apologies, but if we just listen to um, what what has been archived, it'll definitely help us um, um, in our desire to be less confused. So um, it has really opened up my eyes on, um, okay, I think that's a metaphor, so let me just stop. I'll just, I'll stop there, but um, that's all I want to share. Turner Diaries, that's uh, one of the first books we did for our book study session, if my memory is correct. I think Urugu was the first book. Toni Morrison's Blue Size was the second, and William Pierce, The Turner Diaries, was the third book we did in the book study session. Whew. Man, oh man. Uh, other folks who uh, dialed in have commentary, uh, feel free. Line should be open. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening to Gus and to all of the callers tonight. I'm always glad to catch a live show. Uh, to start off with, I want to make a correction on a statement. By the way, this is V from Central New York. Um, I want to make a correction on a statement I made a couple weeks ago, the last time I was with you. Um, I said that Blue Bloods, uh, the television show, uh, took place in Chicago when, in fact, it is a show that is set in New York City. Um, unfortunately, because I don't watch that much TV, um, which is, I guess it's not unfortunate. I guess that's very fortunate. But I took the word of a white person who described the show to me a couple of years ago, and I never went and actually um, fact-checked. Uh, their assertion and their claim. So let me start off by uh, correcting that. Secondly, the idea of giving alcohol to black people, uh, immediately I thought about Public Enemy's song, One Million Bottle Bag. The One Million Bottle Bag. Um, one of, honestly, their greatest songs ever. It really asks the genuine question of, what is in the stuff that black people are drinking when they are so-called drinking alcohol? Uh, amazing song, but also um, recently two friends have been trying to get me to come out with them to bars and to clubs, and that is, of course, not a scene that I want to be involved in. Most of the bars and clubs which they go to are frequented by white people, and to say that I don't trust those environments is an understatement, but I don't. So um, while I evaded them for several weeks, I finally came out and told them it's not for me. I don't really need to be around that energy. You know, you guys go out and have the fun that you want to have, though. Um Next on the list of notes, which I took, uh, Bobby E. Wright. I found a great lecture of his on YouTube, which I had never uh, listened to before. And um, in its early minutes, he talked about the idea of divide and conquer, uh, which had been employed in academia during the late 70s and early 80s in order to fragment the black movement for not only civil rights, 
but human rights. That is a very profound statement, especially today, where I see constantly, whenever demographics are being mentioned, rather in a political, economic, or social sense, black people are always fragmented. Black people are never mentioned as a whole collective. It's black women, it's black gays, it's black men, but we are never one collective. So I found that interesting um, as I was listening to several of the um, uh, the clips, particularly the um, clip on the young black woman being, or excuse me, young black girl being handcuffed by uh, police officers. This is something that a, a, well, my best friend who grew up in a very depressed urban center in Florida told me about years ago where he remembered being in kindergarten, which would have been the uh, mid to late part of the 80s, and the police coming in and handcuffing a black male friend of his who was, quote, acting bad uh, for the teacher. And then finally, uh, something that occurred that has happened to me a couple of times over the last uh, six months, my maintenance guy who comes around and fixes things uh, is a white guy. Actually, there's two of them, uh, but only one of them seems very interested in the fact that I buy books. He has asked me twice in the last six months um, why I buy so many books, you know, what am I planning on doing with all the books. Um, even uh, he saw that I had a large order come in, and he said, wow, you, uh, you received a bunch of books the other day, huh? said, yep. said, well, uh, so you going to write a book or something? I said, I don't know. Maybe. Possibly. Oh. Well, uh, okay, keep reading. I found that odd. Don't, I really don't know why, but I found that odd that he would take interest in that. Anyway, um, I'm signing off, and everyone, please have a good night. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Oh, hi. Good evening. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, hopefully everyone's having the best evening possible. Um, great show. Want to talk about a few things. The first one, I guess, about the the former president and the first lady being called monkeys. That's never going to end. Um, um, we should just. I don't know who would think that would end. Give that up. Um, because there was a picture of him, I guess, on vacation. And whoever took the picture showed him being choked by a white guy. I'm like, oh, you're okay. That's the, all the things on vacation, this is what you pick the show over and over again. It's like, yeah, you're okay. And then people were tweeting that respectfully he should get his butt. They didn't use the word butt. We're back in office because I guess things are, they think things are horrible. I'm like, he did his time. It's over. Let it go. This is how it works. Um, second, about the young the young girl who was um, handcuffed. Unfortunately, we have to, if we don't know by now, we have to become legal scholars out the womb. We should know that from Jim Crow days when the 
I mean, even before then, but when the young black children couldn't go to this park and that park, and they had to just know everything. Um, and also, if you have to send your child to school, I think it's important on the first day, no matter what school they go to, you get the rules even of the classroom, the rule, code of conduct of the school or the classroom, be very clear on what punishments are going to be received for certain behaviors. Make sure you're able to explain that to your child. If they refuse to give that to you, I would take it to the media. I would not put my child in the class because you don't know what's going to happen because every time, every time you turn around now, there's some new law about arresting kids. There's one in Minnesota you can be arrested for felony at five years old. I don't know what you can do that's so bad at five years old. I I, I don't know. Um, and thirdly, I guess about the HBCU series, not so much about the series itself, um, but I guess the the character, the the new president, she was a seems like an affluent African American, and she came to the black school because she had to because she got in trouble. And I think that this sends, of course, a negative message, and we have to be cognizant of that. And even when we go out, know that black is good. Black, is, black. I mean, they other people think their race is the best. We can think our race is the best too, and think our products are the best without talking bad about other products. You know. Not just the funeral homes, the churches, and the hair salons. You know, we do a lot of things well. I know personally, when I want real news, what I think is quality, true news, I'll I come to the black um, the black news radio network, Scotty Reed, you, some of the other programs on the various channels. That's what I personally choose to do when I want to get what I believe is real, true news. And yes, I investigate because it's good to just investigate and be research you know, be research-oriented and scholars to get full perspectives, but, um, you know, not to disparage what we do because what we do is just as good and sometimes better. Like, I think this show is the best show. I think you are the best interviewer. Mike Wallace, whoever, I don't know, care about all those other people. It should not be Edward Murrow Award. It should be Gus Renegade Award. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, that's wild. Um, the, are there other folks that we have not heard from at all? Anybody that, you know, we have not heard from at all during the broadcast? Did we get everybody? Spectacular if we got everybody. Uh, if you, if we have not heard from you and you have comments that you want to share, if you have a question or what have you, uh, you should just go ahead and get your hand up now. We have ample time. Uh, so if you have comments, questions you would like to share, just get your hand up. We had a person who wrote in. Uh, it looks like they wanted feedback. Uh, so what they wrote in, they said, I was at the gym today, and in the locker room, a non-white individual classified as a Hispanic male was in conversation with his Hispanic male friend. They were talking with one another and using the term nigger, N-I-G-G-A, and happened to notice I was in the area, and they asked me if I, had, if I heard their conversation and hoped that I was not offended. Uh, he wanted me to ask the, you all, uh, how would you all have addressed the situation as such? Uh, he said he had no comment. Uh, he just, I guess, proceeded uh, when Uh, can I um, they were, yes, sir. Just additional context. They were using the term referring to other friends 
that are not black based on what he heard, just for additional information. Uh, I think that uh, the person who wrote in had the most correct response in that situation. Um, Even if he had uh, answered in the affirmative that, yes, he was offended, that could have... uh, triggered a, I don't know, that could have, uh, um, that could have initiated uh, an interaction that could have resulted in violence. So um, I think that uh, that was probably the best reaction. Um, it makes me think of something that my, uh, my father told me when I was very small. He said, Kenny, some people are raised to use the n-word you are not you know that for me and has been a part of my code i use the word the n-word and i refer to it because i've been made aware that respected white supremacists are infuriated at the fact that it is social custom to use the N-word in place of uh, the word, uh, you know, in question. That's all. Hello. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I think this is where using the code by Neely Fuller asking questions, that works in every situation. You don't just have to ask white people questions. You can say, well, why would I be offended? And then just keep it going from there because, They'll they'll figure it out. Thank you. Appreciate the response. Anyone else want to provide feedback uh, to the listener who wrote this in? Reckon folks are good for the... Uh, time being, uh, if anybody else listening wants to share on that, feel free as well. Um, also about the situation with uh, the high school students, where the high school cheerleader, she spelled out nigger in the video, and then they went to talk to the other people. I also thought it was important. They, it seemed like so many of the people, they felt they were the victims because the school was being portrayed poorly. Uh, as though, oh, this is a racist school because this incident happened, uh, where I felt like most of the people that commented, they were just upset, like, I can't believe they're making the whole school uh, look bad. This is terrible. This just, that reflects bad. It should just reflect poorly on the one person who did this, not all of us. Like, I'm, I'm ashamed. My, my stomach is sickened about all of this because they've tried to make us all look so bad. Like, uh, I just, I, I thought that was typical uh, racist behavior where it doesn't matter what the circumstance, whites, they always, always become the victims every time. And even the woman that that wrote in, she said, uh, this girl's life has been ruined. I hear that one regularly when a white person, when they post something about niggers this and niggers that on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat like this was, uh, and then, you know, it at least becomes an issue for a few days. Be like, oh, this person's life has been ruined. I have never heard of a white person's life being ruined as a result of them practicing racism. That is, you know, just hyperbole to the highest degree um, whether they I wouldn't get what happened to them I've heard of people losing their jobs temporarily 
and then they get rehired and they move right on with their life. But just that sort of nonsense where they make it seem like this person is going to be living in a cardboard box for the next 50 years as a result of, of getting caught saying nigger. I mean, that is, come on now, master deceiver. Uh, other folks have commentary they wanted to share. Have we heard? Yes, sir. Oh uh, yes. Um, speaking on that, like there, there's been a, a term that I've been hearing. I guess you can say it's like a slogan, where they'll say, um, like, "There's no place." I guess, or something like that. And I know it's got to be more than one person. It's usually when they are responding, they get some kind of comment from some kind of representative, maybe a principal or uh, maybe a superintendent. They'll usually incorporate that that phrase when addressing some kind of um, racial incident. And it's either that or they don't want to give any comment. And... uh yeah, it's either that or, you know, we don't tolerate and it doesn't reflect the views of such and such. You know, it's pretty much like um, somewhat of a template, you know, uh, the general same template that they use when these kinds of incidents happen. And they don't never really seem to deviate from that. So I guess it's a form of codification. I, I might think it, it seems that it is, but... Yeah, I just wanted to point out that slogan that they tend to use. Have you have you ever noticed that as well? The boiler, like the uh, we these this incident uh, is not a reflection of our values, and we take this incident seriously. That general uh, response, absolutely, absolutely, and I think they they do have uh, people that do public relations and crisis management. Uh, where they, you know, come in and they tell you, say this, say this, do not say this, or just say no comment. So I'm sure uh, that particularly if it's a racial matter, they get, you know, the words together quickly. That's probably meeting number one, exactly what we're going to say and exactly right, the exact border, because it seems like every everybody says the same thing. Uh, this is not a reflection of our our values, and we're going to get to the bottom. We're going to take this seriously, and we're going to get to the bottom. I mean, you can almost uh, predict exactly what they're going to say. Can, can I be? Uh, can I also include a, a dialogue? Dialogue. Dialogue. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. had an observation from uh, earlier in the week <clears throat> on a local radio station <clears throat> with uh, all of the um, police um, misconduct uh, that had been going on in the city. Uh, we had uh, some organizations come in the city to counter uh, what the police were doing. Um, one of the organizations was the uh, Revolutionary Black Panthers, um, and they were uh, conducting an interview on the radio. And um, the person from the organization was 
speaking of some of the elders, and uh, he specifically brought up Dr. Welsing's name, and um, he brought up Dr. Fuller, uh, Mr. Fuller's name, and um, he called him Dr. Fuller, which, you know, some people usually do, and um, he had named maybe three or four other names, uh, but well, uh, Dr. Welsing's name and Mr. Fuller's name were the last names mentioned, okay, and then the interviewer um, chimed in and started to ask the uh, person from the organization about some of the names that he um, had just spoke of. And in the city of Milwaukee, we have somebody um, that used to be a former superintendent by the name of Dr. Howard Fuller. And um, when the interviewer was talking to the person from the organization, he um, started to speak about Dr. Fuller, and he said um, Howard Fuller specifically. And my observation was that <clears throat> the person from the organization um, did not correct him in his language. And um, thank you for letting me share. Very, very important, especially if you're speaking publicly about racism. That's just uh, something I think is an excellent code uh, to abide by, is to try to be as, as accurate as you can and, and just make sure that uh, there are no errors, that nobody is confused by what's been said. If you're, you're discussing racism, counter-racism in any way, and it's public, uh, try to be as accurate as you can. I failed at that myself, but, you know, just try as best you can to be accurate. Make sure there's no confusion. <laughs> I'm seeing if other folks have commentary that they want to make sure they get in this segment uh, where I don't know if anybody got to see the documentary that was on PBS uh, about uh, Randy Weaver, all these different, I guess, what they call far-right, quote-unquote, white supremacist uh, organizations. Uh, I didn't get to see uh, either of the documentaries. I'm going to make an effort to check them out. But I thought it was interesting as well in that interview where they talked about when they went to this white male, Randy Weaver, when they went on his property, it sounded like a white person was the one who was the filmmaker and reporting on all this, where he said, uh, it just seemed very sympathetic to all of these armed white thugs uh, at minimum, where when they were talking about being in Idaho, and he said, so they're out patrolling their property with their guns, and he said, well, that's very common. Like, it was immediately like, hey, there is nothing criminal or mischievous about that. That's just what Idaho Idahoans do. Uh, they patrol their property with their firearms as good, you know, Second Amendment-loving constitutional American citizens. Like, that was the immediate pushback. Like, don't be thinking there's anything incorrect uh, or, you know, wrong uh, about them patrolling their property with firearms. Uh, and then the fact that this, this shooting goes down, you've got casualties on both sides, and 
they get totally acquitted uh, just on the grounds of saying, hey, we didn't know that these were officers. And, you know, I guess the judge accepts that and they get exonerated of all charges. That is why, I mean, again, just contrast that to black people. Organization. I mean, you can just pick your, your illustration, you, and actually you can put that with the whole Clive and Bundy situation. I'm very eager to see how that trial uh, goes down this year as well. But I thought that was really interesting. I have to check out the documentaries to see, you know, how these groups are uh, portrayed uh, in the video. Has anybody seen any of those films that were on PBS, or at least one of them I think was on PBS this week? I, I saw, uh, a, if not all, a few of them. I've seen them. Uh, it was detailed, uh, detailed about uh, uh, the uh, the white terrorists that uh, brought down the building in Oklahoma City, and through his story, uh, they connected all of the other previous uh, incidents that were uh, orchestrated by uh, uh, white people that uh, perceivably that practice racism, white supremacy. Uh, so I thought it was interesting in that light uh, that you got a chance to see all of the uh, those different incidents that took place in and around the uh, the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s. Uh, which is, you know, as, as we, most of us know, it's, it's, it's just a small fragment of the experiences of racism, racism, white supremacy. But I thought it was interesting, uh, the different uh, documentaries. Basically, with the, uh, with the, uh, the racists who uh, blew up the, uh, the, uh, the building in Oklahoma City, uh, it was basically stating on how he was affected by the uh, central uh, white person in each of those incidents. To whereas even on the day that he uh, uh, blew up the building, it was on the anniversary, I believe, of the white male who uh, uh, led the uh, this. Uh, David Koresh, uh, I think the branch division. Yeah, David Koresh, right, right. Uh, it actually was on that an, on on the anniversary. Uh, also, there was a, there was uh, I believe there was some non-white black people who burned in that uh, that building also. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check it out. That was that was another thing that stood out. It reminded me of the uh, pulse shooting at the Orlando nightclub this past summer. And they kept saying that this is, you know, the greatest single mass shooting incident of incident of terrorism uh, where it totally discounted, you know, the, the hundreds of times that white mobs have gone out and shot and killed and even bombed uh, large numbers, bombed and killed large numbers of black people, uh, done it repeatedly and bragged about doing it. Uh, in many instances where that just got totally uh, obliterated. It was the same type of thing in terms of what we think of as terrorists. It was almost like the notion of white terrorism didn't begin until, you know, Timothy McVeigh uh, in the 90s, which is absurd uh, with 
centuries of why I mean they are the quintessential illustration of terrorism nobody does it better racist man racist woman racist child other folks have, uh, come. oh go ahead I, I was going I was going to say one thing that that uh, just kind of like gets on my nerves is this this distinction primarily coming from white people primarily and I believe the term the terms came up from white people uh, to uh, uh, describe uh, different uh, different opinions politically by stating left, right, uh, sometimes even middle. I've heard, but not 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 as much. But left and right, uh, and I be- I believe that terminology is primarily designed to confuse people uh, on purpose. Well, most most things that white people do are on purpose, uh, and uh, it, it, it just just kind of like irks me every time I I hear the terminology, uh, because it, it can be very confusing. Uh, I I I would say to uh, the listener, uh, you know, when 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 those type of descriptions are being made, uh, it kind of like goes along with. Uh, your your understanding and in, in, uh, uh, view of of metaphors uh, when when that terminology comes up left and right you know that sort of thing. Go ahead. That that was just a thought. I would agree. Good observation. I think Dr. Welsing, when that that metaphor and again same type of thing, I think uh, done to be confusing, uh, so you don't really understand what they're talking about, and really so you don't understand what it means to be white, thinking that these folks are uh, have some sort of conflict uh, or have uh, competing agendas when that's not the case at all. <laughs> they are all committed uh, and members of the global white minority. Uh, other folks have uh, commentary, things they want to share. Did folks pay attention to the uh, what they call rioting that took place uh, this week in Paris, France, after the enforcement officials allegedly uh, anally raped a black male? Uh, that took place. They were out in the street protesting, and they even had some Black Lives Matter uh, signs and what have you. Did folks pay attention, catch any of the details with that? My first time hearing about it. Hmm. I saw the article on Facebook, um, and uh, was uh, what was the black male name? Uh, Ab. I don't want to mispronounce it, but it was a black male in, I think, New York, where they used a baton. Um, to the yep, and I think it was uh, very similar to uh, that case. And I saw that the French, uh, the French president claimed that it happened by accident. It was an accident. So you, so you anally rape a male, a black male, with you know a phallic object and it's by accident. I don't know how you how someone could even get up and say that and how um, you know it, it's white people. <laughs> white people are just psychopathic and sociopathic. But you just accidentally rape somebody. Okay, okay, unbelievable. I do think it's interesting because they're right in the middle of the French elections. Um, if 
the right that they were saying that the uh, disturbances in the street that they went on for a few days and this has become like a big deal with this going on in the middle of their elections and what you heard uh, Marine Le Pen what she's been saying and she's like the the female version of Donald Trump I think that could definitely uh, boost her in the polls same thing that happened here with Trump same thing that happened with Brexit uh, if that continues and becomes a big deal she will do even better uh, in the poll. She will win. Uh, that would be my, my suspicion. If this becomes a big deal, Rodney King type thing, Trayvon Martin type thing, Maureen Le Pen is going to be president. Can I be heard, Gus? Yes, ma'am. Um, so just speaking about uh, Donald Trump, like, uh, it just makes me so angry sometimes. But, like, the only thing that comes to mind, like, when I think about him is just thug. Like, when, when I hear or I see that word, like, moving forward, like the only person I will think about, you know, will be Donald Trump. He'll, he's the only one that would come to mind. His behavior is, is, has been just a bully mentality, um, you know, bullying everyone, and, 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 like, that's worked, you know, for him, you know, in his business, um, business and, and maybe in his personal life. But it's just uh, very, very apropos. Um, and then if you if you change the Bundys um, to black males, like it would just be a wrap. I'm sorry, that's a metaphor. It would just be over. Like there would be no trial to even you know try to get an acquittal. Um, like you played the song White Power, and I think uh, Rob said it, it was by CeeLo Green. That song is just very apropos when you think about you know Bundy and you think about Trump. Like it's just very fitting. You know when you look at these two um, gentlemen and and they're I don't care if you call them a gentleman. When you look at those two uh, men and, and just their thug behavior, you know, what else, you know, can be said but, but, but white power. So uh, that's it. I just, when you started talking about Trump, and it just kind of came to mind. Thank you, Gus. Oh, yeah, Gus. Um, just to touch on the same article, it's interesting, just to correct myself, it was the actual French police officer who said it was an accident. And in the article, they say that the French police, this is what it says, the French police officer charged with annually raping a black male with his baton during an arrest on February 2nd did so on accident, according to an investigation report prepared by the National Police. A 22-year-old man identified only as Theo suffered serious injuries after he was stopped, beaten, allegedly raped, and arrested by a group of four police officers in Orléans-Soubois, a suburb in north of Paris. One officer was charged with rape and assault. The three other officers were charged with assault. And then they said as they spoke to Theo, this is the victim, at a French TV station, BFM TV, on February 6th, that the officer took his baton and kicked it into my buttocks, which reminds me of the little, the young black male that was raped, and they kicked, raped with the, uh, the, um, the, the hanger. And they kicked the hanger into his buttocks. This is what the guy said that they had done to him with the baton. They kicked it into his buttocks. And in reference to uh, Mrs. Le- Marie Le Pen, they had a nice uh, documentary called on Noisy about French rappers, and they actually had a whole section on Marie Le Pen, and she is the female Donald Trump of France, and what makes her popular is her anti-immigrant status. She is, like, rabidly against anything that's not white and French. And her um, her her ability to reach the French people, the racist white populace in France, is exactly identical to what Donald Trump is doing here. So I just see a global white nationalist, white supremacist movement taking place throughout not just the U.S., but Europe and any countries that are majority white where uh, these people are trying to 
basically get rid of anyone who is non-white that resides within their borders. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Every time when I hear the word immigrant, I always think black. Because of uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a paper which described um, black individuals in the United States as internal immigrants. Every time I hear immigrant, I think black. When Donald Trump was talking uh, about the violence in Chicago, he mixed that in with the idea of having to send federal people. I, don't, I do not believe he said federal agents, but it, he said federal something, and he was going to send them in to get the immigrants that were in, uh, in, in the city. And I just... I think there is something very apt to the idea that there is a white nationalist fervor spreading throughout the, not only throughout the country, but throughout the world. And one thing I have noticed that has been very telling is last summer when I would do, um, I would conduct um, uh, research on YouTube for white nationalist videos. I rarely saw white women coming out as white nationalists. Um, I, I saw the videos. There were videos there, but now, over the last month and a half, I've seen a lot more. Now, maybe YouTube's, um, uh, their search engine is refining, so I'm finding more or something, but they seem more present now which is telling to me because when white women are willing to say, I'm a white nationalist, I'm not worried about the women's movement, you know, that's, that's really the, um, the tribe coming, coming back together. So I'm, uh, I'm very conscious of this. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, before I forget it, uh, uh, well, I'll just preface it by saying that uh, uh, when I do watch uh, movies, primarily they are very, very old ones, uh, much like Mr. Fuller. Uh, If anyone is interested, uh, look on your search engine on YouTube and and look at the movie uh, General Spanky. Uh, 1936. Uh, you will find it very interesting. Uh, it's actually it's a comedy on racism, white supremacy. If you can, if you can understand on what I'm saying, it's actually is a comedy. Uh, all uh, some of us may be old enough to remember the original, uh, quote unquote, our game, and uh, it's that setting, and it's actually the setting is the quote-unquote civil war uh, at the time. And uh, that's the only, only thing I'm going to say about it. Just look at look at if you can stand it, uh, the movie uh, uh, General Spanky. Uh, it's very similar to the other uh, movie that I uh, recommended with Shirley Temple in it, v- very similar to it. Uh, also, I, I just have been having the thought, uh, 
as far as uh, uh, President uh, uh, Trump and his family uh, and the image, quote-unquote, of racism by supremacy, I would rather for that image to be to be uh, 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 showed around the world. Uh, it's more of a, uh, uh, in my view, a uh, much more clearer and quote unquote simpler uh, image of racism, white supremacy. Uh, every character in the so-called in the family. Uh, uh, fits the uh, description of racist and or suspected racist, uh, even the way they look, some of the easy to uh, obtain background of the individuals. Uh, wow, it's, it's, it's just great to see and easy for uh, non-white victims that may want to explain something in the realm of racial white supremacy, you can use any one of those people, uh, the president, his wife, uh, uh, some of it, uh, his children. Uh, you, can, you can easily make examples. Uh, any, any way that you will want to use your imagination to, uh, to uh, explain it to another non-white victim of racial white supremacy, it, they make it very easy. Compar- comparable to some other examples that may uh, that could have gotten there, they are much more easier, easier of an examples, is what I wanted to say. Thank you. Can, can I be heard? Yes, sir. We just had a caller who wrote in. I wanted to get their comment in really quick. Uh, the question: I went to the dentist this past week. The dentist is likely considered to be a non-white male, possibly Middle Eastern or the like. He is friendly, and I never had an issue with him. He also has a staff of white and non-white females. The issue I had was with a white racist suspect, possibly Swedish because of her accent, technician who was finishing up the dental work. Throughout the procedure, she kept setting the dental tools on my bib, which was on my chest, and then she picked them up again as needed. In the past, I had similar issues with white women in my chest area. This hasn't ever happened to me before or to any black females I'm associated with. It made me feel extremely uncomfortable, and I was too afraid to say anything. I feared that she would intentionally mess up my dental procedure, and my mouth was numbed. My question for any black females is, what would they do in that situation? Any black female uh, listeners have uh, a response uh, to this caller's question? Gus, I didn't hear the part. What did she do to her breast? The white dental technician was sitting her dental instruments on this black female's chest area as she was finishing up, uh, the, I guess, the, the remaining parts of her dental work that she was getting done. So she was just sitting whatever tool she was using on this black female's chest area as she was working on her mouth. My, thank you for clarifying that. I missed it for a second. But um, my first thing would be there's nothing incorrect about being professional and stating what you're comfortable with or what you are uncomfortable with. And so I, I completely understand saying, well, you don't want to say anything because you don't want her to take it out on your mouth or to mess up your dental procedure. 
simultaneously at the same time, I would say, you know, as you are sitting there and, like, as she places things, just, uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that. Like, please don't do that. Um, I don't like the way that that feels. It's making me more stressed out for whatever it is that I'm getting done. Um, devising any kind of way that you can say it to where you're, there's no emotion in it. This is just, like, I'm not even, like, race has nothing to do with this. Like, this is just me being me about this whole dental thing and saying it in such a way that it's like up front, we're clear, you know, I'm polite, you're polite. And so that, you know, your thing behind it is you don't want this white woman touching your breast or putting things on your breast. But what she's going to see is, oh, this is someone who's just like unable to focus. Maybe she has something going on, you know, like the way that she feels about her body or something. So just to kind of skew what she's, to mask what you really are saying so that she's looking at something else, but you still get what it is that you want met. I don't think there's anything incorrect about asking someone not to place dental tools on your breast because they actually have a table right next to all of their noisy instruments where they sit all of their tools. So they have space to accommodate their tools and they don't have to use your body. So you can let her know that if you have to go for a follow-up or anything like that, you could just say that up front like, hey, you know, uh, let's not do that. I'd appreciate it if we don't do that. I don't like it. It's just it's giving me, it's making my blood pressure high. Um, however you want to word it to kind of get what it is that you need. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, hello? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I mean, that also sounds like that's some kind of violation because, I mean, I'm not saying people walk around with dirty clothes, but your clothes are outside touching the elements. That's unsanitary. I mean, yes, of course, the touching, that's wrong, but just matter of fact business, that's unsanitary. Like the young lady said before, ahead of me, they have a table that they clean off all the time. They have spaces for that. The space is not on you. That's just dirty, and that's a lawsuit. I mean, that's the first thing I would, I would, I would call, I would write whoever is the dental board. I would let them know that this happened at the office find some kind of legal letter, say this happened, and send it to everybody. And then she had to fight, whoever it was had to fight, say, well, no, it wasn't me. I, no, I know what happened to me, and I told the world. So even if it's not true right now, what whatever people believe is more important than what actually happened. And I'm not saying, of course, that person's telling the truth. But if you put it out there, send it to, send it to the news, just humiliate this whole office. This is what happened. And then... Either the person they could buy or they want to, but their reputation is ruined. Do we have any other females who wanted to respond? She asked uh, specifically if there were uh, black females who had uh, suggestions for how they would respond to this sort of situation. No other black teams. Any black males want to give any suggestions? Right on. I would, uh, I think uh, the two female callers that spoke up, I thought they both gave uh, great recommendations. Uh, I would only say this is, this asking questions can work well in many different settings. You can even put that in the form of a question. Is it possible that you can set these instruments elsewhere? In the form of a question, you can do that also. Uh, oh, uh, 
I did hear you, Robin, Wisconsin, but there were two other people that called in. I just want to make sure I get them so that everybody uh, gets the opportunity. Uh, 6102, uh, Thomas in New York, I think both of you should be with us. Hi, this is 6102. Um, I agree with the last two um, callers that um, it's very, it's not hygienic at all, and I would simply ask them to remove it off of my chest. Um, as they said, there is a tray where they can put their tools, and it definitely shouldn't be on your chest. And that was all I had to say. I would ask, um, I would ask her, would she do that to a white person? And she say, what you mean? I'd be like, would you um, put instruments on your blouse that they wore outside, um, which is very... Uh, ethical is, is um, to potentially contaminate my teeth. Did you do that to a white person? And um, see what they say, being that they're Arab, you said, or I believe you said that they're um, Arab. Um, well, the, the person that she was having a problem with was a white woman. It was the dental technician who was uh, putting the tools on her chest area. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, oh, yeah, I would have... Um, Definitely reported her to the board uh, immediately. Um, yeah, I mean it, that's just totally unsanitary, and um, it's something that should never happen. I've never gone to a dentist, and they they usually put that thing around your your chest, and um, they keep all the instruments on the side. So, yeah, I would definitely when I when she was done, I would have said something. Um, you know, I found this was very unprofessional, and I'm going to report you um, and see what she would have said. Um, but I definitely would have wanted to see a reaction from her before I left the office. Hmm. I guess for just for uh, detail, uh, I think she said she did have a bib on, and this suspected race soldier was placing the dental instruments on top of the bib, if that matters to anyone at all. So I guess it wasn't directly on the clothing. It was on top of the bib over her chest area. Guys, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Just really quick. Um, I've gone in and uh, I've had stuff done to my teeth. Um, this, this, a similar thing has happened to me, and but I don't have the same type of experience with my chest as I think this female caller has had. So, um, like, it could, you know, like, I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is approaching it in such a way that you let this person know because you said that you have a good relationship with the dentist and all of that, and, you know, people talk, and, you, you know, it's hard to come by a good dentist, in my opinion, one that, you know, is good and takes your insurance and all that kind of stuff. So you don't necessarily want to create any tension. You don't even want this to become a thing. You just don't want the tools on your chest. And so I think because they might do it, like I'm telling you it has happened to me, but I didn't even, I don't, you know what I'm saying? It might be different if it was a different part of my body, but I just I didn't even pay it any attention. Um, and actually it was a black woman when she did it, when she was cleaning my teeth. Um, she sat them there. But so I'm saying, just saying simply, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. Um, I, I do agree with Gus. Like, can we just sit these some other place? Just go ahead and posing it in a question. 
she'll say yes because, of course, she has to. You're the customer, the client, the patient, whatever, your rights. There's room for it. There's, you know, it doesn't really have to be a big thing, and you can get what you need, get your needs met without it turning into something else. That's it. Thank you. For sure, especially if you have any sensitivities. I don't know if, because uh, I know we've had uh, black females specifically who've called in before where they've worked with uh, racists and they would make comments about their chest area or even touch them sometimes in their chest area. So if this is a sort of thing where you're regularly uh, being targeted for that part of your body, then, yeah, absolutely. I would I would try and nip that in the bud every time because you know that's something that you, know, you have sensitivities about because you're having to deal with that sort of abuse on a regular basis anyway. So I would – and if – if addressing it just meant asking that question and putting it in the form of a question. Is it possible we could set these tools someplace else? Uh, unless other folks uh, had commentary, uh, we have about 10 minutes. Ken Steele, uh, were you going to comment? Thank you for your patience. Mr. Steele, are you going to comment? Are you still with us, sir? Maybe he muted himself, not sure. Uh, do we have other folks, uh, anything they needed to get out the last 10 minutes before we uh, get ready to wrap things up? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, just to touch on that dental situation, um, listening to uh, all of the uh, commentary, um, I'm really uh, just hearing <clears throat> our level of uh, victimization um, and that sounds uh, very uh, like a very personal situation, and um, I think uh, especially as a black female uh, under this system, um, if at all possible, uh, in any in every situation, uh, you should always set boundaries and um, keep things as professional as possible and um, come at things directly, blunt, and even if that means terminating services. So what? And thank you. I was reminded, uh, I think it was a black female, she actually worked at the dentist's office and found out that her uh, white racist colleagues had been spying on her internet activity. Apparently she had been posting about some of the police shootings and racism, uh, so they were uh, spying on her net activity, which is, should not be a surprise to anyone. You should just have that in mind while you're at work. Uh, particularly if you have to use a, a computer, a desktop computer or what have you uh, for your job, that they are looking at every single thing that you do uh, on that computer all day long. Um, but, yes, uh, they, they had been doing this, and uh, even I think they had been having little secret meetings amongst themselves about her comments and her views on racism and what have you, which is something whites do all the time. But it just reminded me of that since it was in the dental uh, setting. Uh, any other commentary folks need to get in? Everyone satisfied? I know Thomas in New York, I, I saw his hand up earlier. I didn't know if that was everything he wanted to get in or if he's even in a, in a spot where he can uh, communicate with us right now. Uh, 
we will we should be here I thought it was Monday. It might be Tuesday, but it's one of the days at the beginning of the week. Uh, Black Women of Brazil, uh, the founder of that website, uh, where they talk exclusively. Brazil, that area of the world, they have the highest population of black people uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, We were supposed to do that program this past Monday. His daughter was ill and they had to get her medical attention being a parent is tough work uh, so we rescheduled uh, should be at the top of the week uh, we're just confirming to make sure that the date uh, is all set but that should be uh, like I said either Monday or Tuesday and then uh, Mr. Keith Beauchamp uh, he should be back on the program uh, folks recall back in 2015 he was on the broadcast uh, he is a celebrated documentary filmmaker uh, he did the documentary Uh, the untold story of Emmett Lewis Till uh, about the 1955 murder of this 14-year-old black child down in the Mississippi area. Uh, That was in 2005. He also uh, did a documentary on the Moores, the Moores Ford Bridge lynching uh, that took place in Georgia uh, in the 1940s, right after World War II. Uh, he did quite a few other projects, all dealing with racism, different crimes where black people have been targeted, terrorized, brutalized. Uh, specifically with Emmett Till, there's been a lot of publicity about uh, Timothy B. Tyson's new book. He's a suspected racist. His new book uh, on Emmett Till and all the controversy around uh, Carolyn Bryant Dunham, uh, the white woman uh, who Emmett Till allegedly whistled at or insulted or whatever uh, the lie is that warned him being tortured and killed, um, that she, uh, Mr. Tyson interviewed her in 2008 and she confessed to lying. That's kind of the big premise of the new book. Uh, I spoke with Mr. Beauchamp about it uh, because he's been so intimately involved with the case. He worked closely with the Till family. He worked with uh, Mamie Till Mobley, Emma Till's mother, for eight and a half years uh, before she died in 2003. In fact, his work got the case reopened, and he worked with the Department of Justice on a number of civil rights cold cases because he uncovered so much research. So, I mean, this is not just some, you know, hack <laughs> some uh, cut-rate person who read a few books or what have you. I mean, he's done a lot of great research uh, in this case. So I got his opinion. Uh, it ended up uh, becoming a part of a report uh, that should be uh, sometime soon uh, that covers a lot of this. And Mr. Beauchamp, he should be back on the program this Wednesday to talk about uh, just more details about the Emmett Till case and his thoughts on the book with Mr. Tyson. It was very interesting because – At the beginning of the conversation, he said, I consider Tim Tyson a friend. And he explained how they have uh, comrades, uh, Reverend Barber down in North Carolina and different people that they know who've worked together and what have you. So he said, I respect Tim uh, Tim Thomas, wrong Tim. He said, I respect Timothy Tyson, uh, and I respect him as a historian. I consider him a friend. But he, he just said he had real problems with the book and, and just a lot of the detail. Like I said, it will be in the article and he'll be on the program. But after we had spoken for about 40 minutes, and he, he, I think he said specifically, I want to give Tim Tyson the benefit of the doubt in all of this, that maybe he didn't do this on purpose, maybe he didn't know this, that, and the other. And I said, well, how much of a benefit do we – afford him with a book written by a white historian that was published in between Dr. King's holiday and Black History Month. 
And he said, uh, I, man, I wish uh, that had been on the program because he was going to respond. And he said, uh, I, <laughs> he basically, that was the response. Basically, he got to a point where he couldn't really, he couldn't really give a, an adequate response. And he said, that's, that's a pretty good question. I mean, that would seem like perfect timing. That would seem like, you know, there was some, some forethought. He said, anybody who, who works on this stuff at all knows that the perfect time to publish a book on civil rights history, African-American history is January, February, exactly when Mr. Tyson's new book was published. But that'll be coming up on Wednesday. Looking forward uh, to that uh, and the article as well when that gets published. I, I did email Mr. Tyson for comment. He didn't write back. I'll write him again and see if he'd be willing to come on the program to uh, discuss his, his latest book. Uh, we have about three minutes. Any, anything folks need to get in quickly that you can state in like 60 seconds or everybody satisfied? We can move forward with our Saturday evening. Uh, let's see. Uh, we'll get see if we can get both of you. Get Thomas in New York. Uh, lady could go first. Okay. Thank you, Thomas. Actually, fitting time. It was actually in reference to you. Um, I just wanted to uh, let you, Thomas, know, um, know that I appreciated uh, your commentary last night on the uh, delectable Negro and making the connection with uh, consumption when it comes to um, whites using black people's uh, organs for longevity. I thought that was uh, brilliant and uh, something that I've kind of thought about, but uh, to have you kind of um, explain it and uh, comment on it. Um, yes, uh, yesterday, I listened to the program today, uh, was, was very helpful. So thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, thank you very much. Um, you know, once, once a, a long time ago, I was um, looking at a job, man. They were like vampires. Every week they were asking for blood. And one of the questions was, have you been to Europe in the last four years? And I asked why they asked that question. And they said, if you were, then we don't want your blood because, you know, whatever reason. So I kind of let me think that um, their blood is no good. Um. What I wanted to say was uh, today I buried my step-pops, and um, it was in a church, you know, one of the places I hate to go. But um, I just want to say the power of religion, uh, that area is very, very, very powerful. And, um, I mean, I don't even know if there's a way to <laughs> to stop it. It's, it's so powerful. Um, I mean, just, just how... Even me, a non-religious person, and someone started singing a song, and how it could bring the emotion out of you. Even though I'm not a religious person, it's just so powerful. And um, I just wanted to say that. And I'll meet my line. Thank you, Gus. I remember you had told us about that earlier this week. Certainly, our condolences uh, to your family and memory of your uh, stepfather. Uh, I know that is definitely. Uh, unpleasant situation. I wish you all the best and uh, pray for him, he and his family, you and your family, uh, dealing with the laws. Um, that should do it uh, for the broadcasting. Get the exact 
date and time for Black Women of Brazil, because that'll be at the beginning of the week. As I stated, uh, Mr. Beauchamp, he'll be with us Wednesday, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, coming up. Delectable Negro, uh, a week uh, at the end of the week, uh, this coming Friday, we'll be on Section 4. Uh, we're right at the end of Chapter 2, so we're very early in the book. If you haven't started or haven't been following along, you can catch up. It is tremendous. Uh, I'm very much enjoying the read. I uh, think you'll appreciate a lot if you uh, follow along with the text. You can check the archives uh, if you have not been keeping up with the reading thus far. Uh, with that, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, if you have any confusion, if you have questions, can't find something in the archives, uh, feel free to drop an email, and we'll see if we can help you out. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope it uh, was helpful in some way. You're getting a better understanding of racism, white supremacy. Uh, as we state weekly, uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I think, uh, Thankfully, I remember to mention that article at the beginning of the program, uh, the late Frederick Douglass uh, and them talking about how alcohol was used to keep non-white people from being able to think clearly, to develop counter-racist solutions, to escape, uh, try to protect themselves as best they could. Uh, I submit that that same tactic, racist code, is in effect 2017. Uh, I do not think any of us being out and about uh, in the presence of Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, I don't think any of us uh, we're going to make better decisions to keep ourselves safe under these conditions with some narcotics, some tobacco, some alcohol, some cannabis, whatever other poisons, toxins white people concoct. I don't think any of that is going to uh, help us uh, be able to function in a manner to neutralize a race soldier badge or no. Uh, I don't think that any evidence uh, supports that. Uh, I think Dr. Wilson would want us to be sober so that our brain computers can operate with maximum efficiency to crank out. That said, thanks again, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. A victim. Man, a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.